Neil, how's it going? Pretty good. This was a really interesting book. My mind's racing with thoughts. With <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this I mean, this is probably one of my favorite books I've read in a while. Like wow. I'd put it up there with maybe Anti-Fragile and some of those. It's like very close, very close. Yeah, for me, it's it was one of the most interesting books I've read recently, for sure. I haven't quite made up my mind yet on some of the things. But well, but yeah, it's so it's not anti-fragile category yet for me. I think I might need to like. But pretty good. Yeah, maybe this discussion will get me to clarify some of these thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> well, the book we are talking about, of course, for everyone joining us, is the Sovereign Individual by James Dale Davidson and Lord William Rees-Mogg. How do you get Lord in front of your name? It's a great question. There's a chemical engineering professor I had at Carnegie Mellon who had his title was Lord Professor. It's amazing. Awesome. I don't know how you get the Lord part there. Yeah. That's a good question. So if anybody knows, please hit us up on Twitter. Maybe you just do it and hope nobody calls you on your <laughs> yeah, bullshit. Exactly. Uh, Pretty soon we'll start calling ourselves <laughs> Lord, Lord Nat Eliason <laughs> and Lord Neil Sony. <laughs> anyway, uh, Sovereign Individual was actually written in 1996, which is crazy for a lot of reasons we're going to get into during the episode. But it was written in 96, and it's about the idea of this new person that will rise out of the information age, the sovereign individual, who will take full advantage of all these new technologies that are emerging, and in doing so, essentially transcend the nation state that we've all become used to living in. And that sounds kind of crazy and grandiose, but throughout the book, they break down how technology is going to lead to almost radical self-ownership and freedom, and what that will mean for decreasing power and authority of the existing major governments that we think of today. And they also look at the historical side of how this has happened in the past, because exactly. it's very easy for us to sit here and think, well, the world as it exists is how it will exist in the future. Very common fallacy and super easy to do. I know as I started reading this book, I fell into that trap a few times where I was like, no, this isn't possible. Or like, And then you're like, wow, actually, a lot of these things have happened in the past. And so, yeah, so we'll get into all of that. But yeah, some of their suggestions at first you find hard to believe. And then you're like, wait, this is already happening. Kind of makes sense. That's what's cool about it being written in 96 is that they were writing it in a pre-internet powered mobile phone, very early internet, like Web 1.0. There was no real cyber economy of any kind at the time. Like Amazon was maybe just starting. And if anybody hasn't seen Amazon's original website for book selling, you should go look that up. We'll, we'll link it in the show notes. It is hilariously ugly. Really? Oh, yeah. I haven't seen it. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll have to put it in. Within these predictions, though, and we're going to just list off some of them to get you guys excited and then jump into getting back to those past transitions Neil was just talking about. But they say that we're going to move away from country-based economies to a decentralized cyber economy, shift from big established companies and democracies to more specific kind of like rapidly changing jobs and back to more of a city-state model. There'll be a revolt and social unrest from the new unemployable underclass, which will come from automation and technology, removing their ability to contribute meaningfully to the economy. There'll be a massive increase in human mobility across borders where we can choose where we live, basically the same way we would choose an insurance plan. Most or many services that we think of today as being public and having to be provided by the government can become private services. There'll be way more entrepreneurship and other contract work, and there will be this massive neo-Ludite revolt and uprising against the upper classes and anybody who's taking advantage of these new technologies. 
pretty exciting stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of big ideas in there. I think the best place we can go is just dive right into what you were saying about how some of this has happened in the past and how they describe this as the fourth stage of human society. Yeah. So they go, you know, as they're sort of introing this, they go over kind of four different stages of which we are now in the fourth one. Where at the time when they were writing this, they were saying we're entering. So stage one being the hunter-gatherer societies, stage two, agricultural, stage three being industrial, and then stage four being informational. And obviously these are very broad generalizations, but I think as sort of epochs, they're not a bad, you know, generalization to use. Yeah. Well, there's a huge change when we went, especially from hunting, gathering to agriculture, right? Where it's easy to forget that in a hunter-gathering world, there's no property. Like right. nobody really needs right. to own much of anything. Right. You're living in a community. Pretty much everything nor is protect, shared. Nor protect much of anything besides yourself and your kind of close family and tribe, basically. The idea of land, right? Where this is my land, that would seem absurd to them because right. <laughs> you're moving around yeah. all the time. And humans were basically as as densely populated as bears, right? right? And you're not seeing bears everywhere the way you see people everywhere today. And so you can imagine that you'd be able to just roam for huge swaths of land and not probably see other tribespeople for a while. And it was really only when people started growing things that you had to say, no, this is my land. This is my territory. Because if you spend a year growing wheat right. or whatever, exactly. you want someone to come in and take it. Right. So that, like, that was a huge shift. That's a gigantic, I mean, that can't even be overstated how big of a shift that is. That changed everything. And it's weird because we think of property as just something almost natural where it's like, oh, obviously humans have property. This is mine or this is yours. Right. But that's not, it's only been around for some thousands of years. Yeah. Like arguably 10, 15. Yeah. Yeah. It, it depends on who you ask. Right. I mean, there are those who would say that there's, you know, much older civilizations that had farming and we haven't found them yet. Okay. Did you see that uh, one in British Columbia? I emailed about it this week. Somebody okay. dug up a society that they found in British Columbia about 14,000 year old. That was a agricultural? I think it was a semi-settled society. Wow, interesting. Yeah, so there's some of these that people are finding that are kind of in between the nomadic and it's unclear if it's agricultural or if it's sort of like a shared religious center. Okay. Right. Kind of like what they think with Stonehenge, yeah. right? So it's like a gathering place kind of, but they're still sort of roaming around. Still doing some roaming and might, might like leave plants so that they can grow, but not deliberately tilling to them. We'll try to limit the tangents, but yeah. <laughs> that being said, Go ahead. so I've done a lot of reading around beer and alcohol history, and they say some of that might be actually what sparked the sort of semi-settled and then the actual settled part. Because, you know, it used to just be like you'd find rotting fruit or see animals eating this rotting fruit and then acting strange, <laughs> right? Um, I love that. Yeah, it's awesome. Like elephants are actually known to look for Rotting fruit. You know, animals do drugs too. They do hallucinogens. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So there are certain plants. This that, sounds like a future episode. But. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Might have to do a hallucinogens episode. Yeah. But there are plants that our bodies can't process them this way. But tigers and I think some other felines, there's certain plants and their body can process part of it straight into, I believe it's straight into DMT. Oh, wow. And so they just get these crazy hallucinogenic trips off of and them they and they out. seek it out. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, humans are doing that for alcohol as well. But then we learned that you can do certain things to 
maximize your odds. Maximize how much alcohol you get. Yeah. (laughs) And then I think a lot of it too goes back to like kind of what you were saying with the religious sense, like these shared gathering places. Alcohol is kind of used in these religious ceremonies, right? So it's like if you have these gathering places that are used specifically for these types of ceremonies, then probably there were people who were responsible for making sure those ceremonies happen properly and then they would figure it out. But then it's like once you start growing barley, for example, or you start cultivating grapes for these religious ceremonies, it's not a big leap from there to cultivate the rest of your food as well. Yeah, but it's a huge shift in, in everything because yeah. then this field becomes mine or yours or ours, ours right. versus the others. Versus the others, yeah. And that was just the first shift, right? Yeah. So stage one, we've got hunter-gatherers. Stage two, agriculture. Stage three is the industrial move. And it's, th- this took me a little bit to figure out, but they don't mean like 1800s industrial. Right. They right. mean almost like printing press. Yeah, like 1500s, 1600s maybe. I guess that was one of the first widely used machines I never really thought about that before. And it also distributed information in a lot wider way than had ever been done before. So they use the church a lot as an example and the printing press in particular because up until that printing press really got going, the church controlled a lot of information in general because it wasn't easy to find anything. You just hear about it from the churches and there not many people were literate either because it wasn't really necessary. Well, there was no need. There weren't enough books, right? Yeah, so they viewed that as I think where the turning point really happened. And then they say that this is going to be the fourth stage, the information societies. And there's so much to this. And a lot of the book is digging in on these information societies. But they talk about how a big part of it is going to be this cyber economy. And I think we're going to come back to a lot of the aspects of the information society later. But in the beginning, how they introduce it is they highlight all this stuff about wealth and the cyber economy. And they basically say that in the future, which we're getting pretty close to now, Wealth will be measured not by the amount in your bank account, but your ability to structure your affairs to realize complete individual autonomy and independence. And that there will be this unprecedented financial independence possible for you in your lifetime. And it was really crazy for me reading that because I feel like that is a life that we're living where, especially if you, a lot of time, if I talk to some of my extended family who are just like anybody older, it's kind of hard to explain what it is we do, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) how we make money, right? It's like, well, I do stuff on the internet and then other people do stuff on the internet. And then, you know, like that makes money. It's, and there's no offices or place that you go or boss or anything. And I think we're really starting to realize this idea of unprecedented financial independence. And independence in general, right? It's like their freedom has many degrees, right? right? And it's kind of like going back to what you were just saying, right? When you talk to people who are older or, and it's not necessarily an age thing, but it's a good heuristic. It's more like the, I would almost say like the old economy versus like, well, the industrial societies yeah. and we're transitioning to the information societies. Yeah. yeah there's a real gap in yeah. understanding. I mean, I honestly sometimes have a lot of time struggling with people who work in the old economy where I'm trying to figure out what are the tasks that people are doing as opposed to like, they go to the office all day, right? So there is definitely a big understanding gap between the two ages from there, or not ages, but I guess um, epochs that they're referring to here. That distinction you just made is a big one in the book too, where they say that in the industrial society, there was this idea of having a job, a place you go, a thing you do every day, something you possess. And that is going to go away in the information age for a number of reasons. But you know, most importantly, that a lot of those people just aren't really doing anything. And with this new info technology, it's going to be so much easier to 
automate or replace, you know, people who aren't contributing and to figure out who is actually doing something meaningful. And there won't be a need for these huge firms in a lot of cases, but you'll be able to have independent contractors and a job will be something that you do, not something that you have, which is the traditional meaning of the word, right? Right. Or I guess in their sense, they're saying it's the traditional meaning from the industrial age. During the industrial age. Not no, no, I, I'm saying that something you do is yes. the original meaning. Yes. And it was just yes. a weird industrial yes. age yes. flip where it was like everybody's entitled to a job, right? Yeah, for, so it was almost an anomaly for this one epoch. Do you think during the informational society's time, like they'll get rid of that question, what do you do? Because I hate that question. You know, I hate that question too. Unless you have like half an hour, unless it's like on a podcast or something and you yeah. can actually talk about it. I generally prefer to rephrase it. I imagine that question will stick around for a while. I prefer yeah. to ask people something like, what are you working on? That's right. a much better way to put it. Because yeah. that will usually get you a bit more interesting of an answer. And then if they have a day job that they're not excited about, but they're doing something exciting yes, on the side, they'll talk about that instead, right? Uh, I don't know, maybe, but I, people will still do work. People still do work for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. This is not a book that's like, oh, the robots are going to come and you can lay on a beach and, a, you know, R2-D2 will serve you like <laughs> margaritas all day. Yeah. <laughs> that's not what they're saying. No, no. But for the people who can take advantage of it, you can get access to this unprecedented financial freedom, which yeah. is a big part of being a quote unquote sovereign individual. And we're already seeing a lot of parts of that, right? I think the digital nomad movement yeah. is a huge example of yeah. this, where we're going to talk into some of the national stuff later, but they talk about how when you can do all of your work online, you can do it anywhere and you can go to places where it's going to be way cheaper. And I mean, this isn't so true for Americans for reasons we'll like come back yeah, to. Too, yeah. But if you're Canadian, for example, you can go be a nomad in Thailand and pay zero taxes. You don't have to pay any income taxes back to Canada. I mean, you're breaking your visa technically when you're in Thailand, but they can't really track it because you're doing all your work online, right? right. You're not working in a noodle shop. Right. So yeah, that's true. You, you literally just pay no taxes. And so I have a number of friends who are international who are doing that. And that adds up a lot if you think about it. Especially if you're living in Canada and you're paying like 50%. Yeah. Oh, man. Dude, in America, we pay basically that amount too. Roughly. I, mean, I think we pay slightly less than Canada, but you pay a lot when you add up state and federal. And that doesn't even count like sales taxes and living in New York. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Um, so yeah, there's there are definitely like things that we're already seeing kind of globally. And then, I mean, I, personally, I think the trend of companies offshoring as well is very much tied to this also because it's like, you know, part of it is a legal thing where they found loopholes, but part of it is also like you can be located anywhere as a company now. So why not locate in the best jurisdiction that you can? Well, they, they give that great example of GM can't pack up all their plants right. and go to right. China, but you or I can throw our laptops in our bags and go to South America right. and our business comes with us. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Which is pretty wild. Yeah. And I, I mean, we're already seeing like so much of it because these are, I mean, these are some of the predictions that they throw in there that the cyber economy will be the greatest economic phenomenon ever. Right. And I think that's already been pretty true as financial freedom increases governments will have to treat us more like customers and less like victims of an organized crime ring, which is a really interesting way of framing it. Uh, these guys are like hyper libertarian, yeah, right? right? So it, we're going to have to come back to the organized crime thing because that, that's one aspect we really haven't seen as much of yet. But yeah, when money can be earned anywhere, you won't be obligated to live in or subject yourself to high taxation like we just talked about, right? It's very hard for Americans to do that. But if you have almost any other passport, it's so easy for you to not pay taxes anymore. As technology weakens the state, the state will start to treat these new sovereign individuals with hostility in the same way it treats challenging governments. I think we're going to see that. I think you're already seeing it. Yeah, like uh, Eduardo Sovereign, right? 
Right. You know, he went to Singapore so that he didn't have to pay like a billion dollars in taxes when he sold his Facebook stock. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, he got shit on for it. They almost made a law like against specifically him. Remember what was that? I don't think it got passed, but there was like definitely some congressperson. Well, there have been a few tries to do it. Bill Clinton tried to do a law about this too, which they mentioned in the book, like the exit tax. Right. It's like the analogy I really liked in the book was uh, they were saying countries are, especially the United States, is treating citizens almost like cows to be milked as opposed to like individuals, right? It's like, well, you know, you produced more milk this year, so we deserve more. Take more milk. Yep. um, (laughs) So this idea of exit tax is really kind of implying that it's like, hey, you are a property that this country has that, hey, you can buy your freedom, essentially. Well, I mean, I think that's why the organized crime ring analogy is so interesting. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. But it is kind of a similar thing. It's, you know, no, no, you're you're part of the family and you better keep paying to be part of the family or we will literally put you in jail. Exactly. It's like the classic mafia thing, right? Of like, they'll come into your stores. Like, it'd be a shame if someone (laughs) destroyed your store. Awful nice life you got here. (laughs) But if you pay our 7%. You'll continue to be comfortable. Yeah, just a couple last things they have here that a job will be a task that you do, not a thing that you have. I think we're going to keep coming back to that. Then this is the last one, which is... I don't know, it's super exciting to me because I've done some stuff with VR, but they specifically say with tech increasing, we'll move closer and closer to Neil Stevenson's metaverse and Snow Crash, where we live as much online as offline and conduct ourselves according to online laws and customs as well as offline. You definitely already see that. And when they framed it like that, I'd never really thought of us already kind of being there in that sense, but in many ways we are. We just aren't experientially. Right. So have you read Snow Crash? Not yet. So what's really cool about it is he doesn't really explain how the tech would work, understandably. But you have some device where you're just dropped into a VR world where you have full control over everything. And, you know, it's like fully immersive VR. Have you read Ready Player One? Uh, no, but I know what it's about. I've seen but a similar yeah. idea, right? Where you put on like this headgear and then you're in this other world and you're yeah. walking around and moving around in it as you would in the real world. So like very, very, very good VR. Yeah, like really good AR VR, tech, complete yeah. simulated reality. And that part isn't here yet, but communication. I'd say the mental part is though. Yeah, that's what like, I was we, thinking as yeah. I read this was like a lot of the stuff is already there, right? Yeah. We do a lot of our communication online. Right. We do a lot of our transactions online. I mean, if you think about our money essentially exists online, like the money that you yeah. have, you've never actually seen. I don't think I've ever had more than 100 or $200 in cash. Yeah. Right. So, so, like, so <laughs> I've never like, been paid in cash for anything, <laughs> yeah. right? It's wild. Yeah. Like none of this stuff really exists. It's right. all in this, literally this metaverse. Which is a potential black swan. Oh, but yeah, yeah anyway, that's... Uh, well, have you ever read about how the internet is wired between countries and stuff? It's kind of like a hilariously janky system yeah. where there's just these big tubes underwater yeah. going between countries and there's people whose jobs it is to protect them. You know, I don't want to give anyone any ideas, but if somebody really wanted to mess with the world, I can't imagine it would be that hard to find a place where you could just cut the internet lines. Maybe I'm being totally naive. I don't know enough about it. I wonder, but, there has to be like satellite backups for key things. Like... I would guess like well, military as as, things, there's probably backup. Yeah, I mean, as long as there's still some connection, the system sustains itself, right? Because it's like this web. But yeah. I would imagine you'd be able to find some way to... Some vulnerability. Yeah, well, that actually happened a few years ago. Some lines got cut and it decreased speeds between, I want to say, US and Europe. We'd have to find this story maybe put it in the show notes. I could be totally wrong. But it's definitely a vulnerability. Yeah. But yeah, it's literally just all light bouncing around in tubes. And that's where all of our money is (laughs) and our communication and everything.
Moral of the story, back your stuff up. Yeah, back your stuff up. <laughs> Get a cold storage wallet for your Bitcoin. But yeah, it's really crazy because as they dig into all of this, you start to see how some of it's already happening and how more of it could happen in the future. And what I think is interesting is how they frame forecasting because what they're doing is predicting. But what they point out is that forecasting is generally wrong for most things where it's trying to just predict the future. But they point out that a forecast that's anticipating how incentives on behavior will change things, you can get it broadly right. Because if you just get down to the base incentives, you'll be able to get a good idea of what's happening. Because you can largely predict behavior on incentives. Largely. Yeah. Not, not, I wouldn't say always, but... But people will be mostly rational yes. in broad strokes. Right. And so if you can say that, okay, the internet's getting faster, so more business will move online, which means less business is happening offline, which means it's harder for governments to track business, which means that governments will have less power over your money. People can scale themselves a lot more. Yeah. So that's a big one. People People can right. make a lot more money and they're not going to feel as obligated to tell the government about it. I mean, I'm sure you have friends like this right now, but I've a number of friends, like I've made some, but not crazy amounts, but who've made a lot of money on Bitcoin and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have to tell the IRS. Yeah. <laughs> and there's literally no way they can know. They would know if you made a sale and that money hit your bank. But, you know, all you would have to do is go to another country, sell it in that currency, right? Transfer. It's not that hard yeah. to make a lot of money in there or to get paid in Bitcoin and transfer it. It's very easy to hide your money right yeah. now. And then as they're pointing out, you can predict what incentives will lead to. And as it gets easier and easier for the layman to hide their money, more of them are going to do it, right? The uber rich have done this for years right. where they can pay to exactly. avoid taxes. Right. But the general, you know, if you're making less than a million dollars a year, it's pretty hard to do yeah, that. And I mean, they gave the exact same example with the church, right? Where they were saying how back when information started getting out because of the printing press, they would initially try to like squash every bit of sort of rebellion against the church, but pretty soon it just like proliferated beyond any kind of possible control. And it's basically a giant game of whack-a-mole and it's <laughs> a losing battle ultimately. Oh yeah, there's just no way. I mean, it's easy to prosecute, you know, let's say a few thousand people doing tax evasion using Bitcoin or something like that. But if it was on the order of tens of millions, I don't know if you can effectively enforce anything. It's kind of like marijuana, honestly. Marijuana use is so rampant that you have to either be getting profiled in some way or be very unlucky to get in trouble for something like that. For something as simple as just possession, you know, kind of like you get caught for something else. But there's just so many people who in at least most US cities, right, have it or are using it that it's just like most cops don't seem to go out of their way to enforce that. Oh, yeah. I don't think anyone cares anymore. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, to be fair, they will use it as an excuse. Yes, yes exactly. But it's not like uh, it's kind of like, I mean, it reminds me of how during Prohibition, there were so many people oh, drinking yeah. alcohol <laughs> and it was used as like kind of like a way to nail you for something else. But not really. That wasn't the thing that you were getting actually in trouble for. It's like Al Capone, yeah, right? right? Got right, nailed yeah. for tax evasion yeah, or right. tax fraud or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, that's not really what he was in trouble for, but that was what they were able to get him <laughs> that's for. That's what they could get him for. Yeah. Yeah. So I think their point about making predictions based on incentives rings true, where you can see how, as it gets easier and easier to make money in this metaverse, in this internet, where it's completely untraceable, why wouldn't you, right? <laughs> now, I think there's a, a really interesting risk that they bring out here, which is the time horizons too, because like there is going to be a backlash. There is already a backlash. But they don't say how long that backlash could last or how painful it could get. They allude to it. 
but we don't know, right? So what we're not saying it's going to be like a straight line. And I don't think that's what they're saying either from like here to everyone's on the digital economy and we're all not paying taxes and stuff. Like they're not saying it's going to be a straight line. It might be actually like a very, you know, I don't want to say like civil war type of thing, but like a very painful transition. And they don't know or say really how bad it could get. I think we're already seeing some of the potential for that. They have this point here because in this section, they're talking about how there's going to be this big change to the information age and you can forecast certain parts of it. And they say that any transition like this always has social chaos and heightened violence and major unrest by the people whose lives are going to be changed the most. And, you know, like you said, we're already starting to see some of this where, you know, unfortunately, there's going to be a really big class of people who just won't be able to make this shift. If you've been doing sort of a manual labor or basic service job, it's very hard for you to take advantage of the information economy the same way like a developer in Silicon Valley can. I actually would say that group is probably safer than the middle, like I'm using air quotes that no one can see on the podcast, but middle class office white collar workers. Yeah, good point. Uh, Insurance salesperson. Yeah, I would say if you're like a manual laborer, you might actually have less competition in the information age. That's a good point. Uh, and if, especially if that's what you've been doing, like that's what you're experienced in. And I think if people who are kind of growing up in the information age and really taking advantage of that, you're probably okay also. But it's the people in the middle who I don't know if they'll be able to make the shift and if there will be a need for what they do in the future. That's the scary thing. And they talk about this in the book too. There's a lot of paper pusher jobs. Yeah, a lot of paper pusher jobs, a lot of kind of redundant work that can be replaced with automation. I was actually talking to my mom about this. Automation or one person can do a lot more than, you know, maybe you needed 10 people before that now you only need one. Well, and that's what she and I were talking about because she's a lawyer. So, you know, she's at this firm and then she's got a bunch of associates that work for her. And a lot of their work is finding documents, revising documents, doing research. And it's not hard to imagine that in within five years, some company will come out with a really good legal AI that can replace 90% of associates. Yeah, I'm sure some are working on it. And there's going to be a lot of things like that, where you would think that these, oh, high paying, traditional, safe jobs, law, accounting, even medicine, right? You'll be able to replace pretty broad swaths of people with this technology. And then what do they do? And I mean, it's the same thing with parts of the supply chain or even the business, like a business structure of various industries. So even like in alcohol, for example, right? It's mandated by law right now that there is a manufacturer, a distributor, and a retailer. And you're already starting to see, because it used to be, right? If you're the manufacturer, so let's say a brewery, it's not easy to, you'd have to build a full sales team. You'd have to go sell to each individual bar. So these distributors popped up who were like, hey, we'll go do that part for you and we'll handle like the delivery side and, you know, we'll basically take that work off your hands. And over time, I guess that got built into the law. I don't quite know how that got built into the law or when that happened. So they have to be separate entities. Yes, legally. Oh. In most states still. And you're starting to see that breakdown because a lot of breweries made the argument that like, well, people hear about me now and bars will come to me and ask me if they can carry my beer. Why do I need to pay a distributor even though I'm the one who found the customer, right? So why am I paying this 30% cut to this guy who didn't bring me the customer and is not doing anything really? I'm just, I'm the one doing all the work and the retailer is doing all the work. Why is this guy in the middle of taking 30% as like a toll just because it's built into the law? So many states now are saying that small brewers are exempt from that. So like in the state of New York, I don't know what the volume limit is, but below a certain volume. But I think that's honestly part of this shift that we're seeing. Like that used to not be as easy to find out about these smaller breweries. Now, because the internet, you can find out about breweries who are anywhere, you know, Montana even, right? And we live in New York. 
well, and you that, can find breweries anywhere. It doesn't matter. That's another big part in here too, yeah. is this idea that we're going to have more competition from smaller businesses. Yeah. And that's going to be really good for the end consumers. It's great for the consumer, but it sucks if you're a distributor, right? In this situation, because your entire job was discovery and basically bridging that gap. But now if I'm not saying it's going to completely, completely go away, maybe there's still a case for it, but it's definitely less than what it is today. So if you're in that kind of job and that's where you've built all your expertise, like what do you go do? That's a great question. And I think that's where you'll probably see a lot of the dissatisfaction and chaos. Yeah. And we're already seeing some of it. I think (laughs) they come back to it more later, but they specifically mention a sort of uprising social unrest from the white collar and I guess some blue collar middle class where there will be this rebellion against the information elite, the rich, and they also call out immigrants because they say that as it becomes easier and easier to move between borders for work and stuff, people will do it. And then you'll have people coming to the U.S. or going to other countries for work and the people within those countries who get displaced because of these, you know, rising sovereign individuals at whatever tier they're at. There's going to be this resentment for them. And you could go back to like this nationalist anti-immigrant state in the desire to protect the traditional nation state that everyone's kind of used to. Right. Which I would say that's definitely what we're seeing right now. Definitely seeing. I mean, it's the same idea with like. So I think there's two ideas here, right? There's like the shifting nature of the world because of how information is now being distributed, I guess, more widely. But then there's the other part, which is that your work can also be done transnationally. So it's going to go to wherever is cheaper. So think about the whole outsourcing trend, right? So like, I know we all do this where we'll outsource certain tasks like design tasks or usually things that are like not necessarily creative work, but things that can be done that are more time-based, I would say, and that just require a certain level of skill, but not necessarily like you don't need an Ivy League graduate to edit your blog post, right? That's, you know, you find somebody on Upwork. A lot of those people are definitely not in the US, right? I mean, you just go to Upwork. It's like India, Philippines, Middle East, Middle East Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe, I was just gonna South say, America, yeah. Yep. yeah, Asia. Places where the cost basis is way less than the United States. Like to hire somebody in the United States with that level of skill, you probably still have to pay like $20, $30 an hour. Whereas in these countries, it's like 2 to $3 an hour a lot of times, which is great for us as, I'm using air quotes again, but quote unquote employers in the US, but it's not good for the people whose jobs we are replacing. They're not going to be too happy about that. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've got a friend who does a, he basically is like a recruiter, but for Filipino virtual assistants. And he was telling me that if you pay them $10 an hour, it's like amazing, right? Like that's yeah. a fantastic income for them, right? And that would be almost impossible to pay an American for good virtual work. I mean, you have protests yeah. against $10 an hour. <laughs> exactly, like, for $15 yeah. an hour minimum wage, right? right? And it helps to live in a place that's way cheaper. No, that's exactly what I'm saying. So like I'm saying that it, the these types of jobs are going to, and they're making this exact prediction. I'm not the one making it. It's like these jobs are just going to go by necessity. You can't compete with those economics. Like oh, yeah. you can compete if it's like, okay, well, if it's like a 20 cent per hour difference, I'd probably rather take the American because I know like there will be less cultural differences. Like I can communicate with them easier. But if you're talking like a 10x difference, it's going to be really tough to take the American over the Filipino person. Oh, yeah. And especially for things that aren't language based, yeah, like hopefully. development. I've had a lot of people who will just 
outsource their mobile app or website development to someone overseas and they do great work, right? The guy who hosts my site and the site for this podcast, he lives in Colombia, right? Because it's way cheaper for him to live and have a great life and run the business from there than it is to live in the US. And even at the much smaller, like so scale, like let's say a startup, right? You think, okay, like when I was working at Mom Trusted, which is in San Francisco, three of our developers sat in Belarus and they were great. They were just as good as anyone I've seen here. But we had three of them for the price of one US person, at least one San Francisco US person. But we had three of them and they were actually full-time employees of our company. So we had like an entity set up in Belarus. It was not actually that hard to go do that. And that government made it very easy to go do that. We had an office, you know, just off space for them three. But yeah, like they were full-time employees of our company and cost one third for each of them. Well, and it's kind of cool too when you have somebody on the other side of the world working with you because you go to sleep and then you wake up and they've done whatever stuff for the day while you were out. Yeah, this trend is definitely playing out and it's kind of cool to see that they made that in 96. They made that call. That's the thing we have to keep coming back to that's so crazy. It's 21 years ago now that they're making these predictions and so much of this has like started to come true already. So I think we can skip ahead a little bit here to sort of the parallels between the decline of the church and the nation state, because we've touched on it a bit, but it's a very helpful analogy, I think, for understanding this, because I didn't totally know. I guess I kind of knew it, but I never thought about it that much. The church used to be the state for most of, we're talking about Europe here. That's the thing we have to remember, right? Different world in Asia, but at least for Europe, right? The church was the state and that crumbled kind of slowly and then all at once with the rise of Protestantism and the printing press. And it broke that stranglehold on information that we talked about, right? Where suddenly everyone could have a Bible and everyone could interpret it, right? right? And then everyone could have other books too, right? (laughs) (laughs) So what they talk about is- It's like the prelude to blogs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. So that's actually a, a big analogy that I like using where the printing press destroyed the authority of the church. And I think the internet has destroyed the authority of- credentialed people. Oh yeah, totally. Where this idea that, oh, well, I'm going to trust you just because you have an economics PhD is kind of BS now because I can just go online and fact check anything they're saying. And what you'll find is that there are some people who really know what they're doing and some people who don't. Or like, I don't go to doctors for annual checkups or anything anymore because we can just do the research and do our own blood work now, right? There's no reason. And most general practitioner doctors don't know much more than you can figure out online, right? right? And they're going to have some biases behind it. And you can like go in and quiz your doctor and, you know, just ask them something offhand, right? Like, does eating eggs raise my cholesterol? Right. Great one. (laughs) And if they they say, oh yeah, you need to stay away from eggs, just eat the white leg. All right. Peace. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So especially because like things like that are so clear now, like it's not even arguable. There was no way of knowing that before the internet. I was thinking about this because, you know, when I was raised or when I was growing up, my parents kind of fed me like shit and they kind of ate like shit. But we didn't know back then. It wasn't really easy to find out in any way, shape or form. Yeah, We can only figure that out now because we have all this information available to us. And back then it was basically, okay, American Health Association says that carbs are good and fat is bad. We better eat that way. And that basically gave a whole generation diabetes. Yeah, literally. (laughs) But Um, now we can look it up. There's a really good blog post on the Loose Threads blog. They also have a podcast, but it's specifically in the sort of retail world. And they're talking about the death of the supply-driven world. Very interesting article. But basically what they're talking about is used to be that whatever was sort of in your local store, 
is what you had, right? If you go to Macy's, right? Or you go to like JCPenney or, you know, any department stores, mainly what they're focusing on. But whatever those buyers had decided to bring into the store is like the selection for the group of people that you know. So it was just very local. Now that was pre-social media though, right? Now with social media and the ability to buy online, it's not about what your local store has. It's about what the world has that you can buy. And you're seeing trends from around the world too. In a very similar way, I think, as you were saying, the doctor stuff, it's the same idea. It's like, it used to be the supply of doctors was whoever the doctors were in your area. And the supply of medical information was whatever the local doctors were telling you or your particular doctor. Yeah. But now it's like the bulk of medical knowledge you can access yourself, as you're saying, right? So, And you can also pay doctors for video consultations, really good ones. And you don't even need to go in to like a hospital anymore, right? Uh, Another friend of mine, Connor, he gets his blood work done. I don't know if it's through Wellness FX or through another one, but he gets like a full blood panel done every three to six months. And then he Skypes with a doctor in, I want to say she's in Spain, but her expertise is in blood work and understanding it and like giving advice on it but she only works over skype great business oh amazing business yeah Yeah. you just pay her a few hundred bucks i imagine for the consultation she goes through your blood work makes recommendations for improving your health and it's very research forward so she'll send you all the research papers on what she's recommending and how you can tweak your diet and your environment and your exercise so she's like citing everything exactly right and that's something you can do now and that is not only it's not that the doctor like 30 years ago in medical school (laughs) had heard that eggs are not good for cholesterol and like is just parroting that since then so she's like backing it up and you're getting way better medical advice than you ever could have gotten really in history because you can do this full blood work for a few hundred bucks and then you can get an expert to go through it and give you advice right that's crazy that we live in that world yeah <laughs> which is i think like this is probably going to tie back to something we're going to talk about a little bit later but it's like i think the ability to do things like that mm-hmm. are going to lead to more situations where you are compelled to buy health insurance like we currently have like it's mm-hmm. illegal to not have health insurance in the united states now right. like you pay a fine which is odd right if you think about yeah. it it's something you don't buy you pay a fine seems very strange mm-hmm. But I think as it becomes easier to do this type of stuff where you can consult the doctor in Spain and get blood work done and not need to go into a physical doctor, the state is going to have to do more to maintain the current order. And they're going to be incentivized to that. And then, you know, I think to the point of what is going on in the book, that will only last so long because they can't keep playing whack-a-mole. As this stuff becomes more accessible. I heard something cool with health insurance that I'm sure there's somebody doing and I'm very excited for where health insurance traditionally is you pay into it and then they kind of hope that you live a long time so that they don't lose money on you. But somebody will likely release a flipped version where you're paying 150 or 200 a month or whatever. And then their job is to keep you healthy. Right, because that minimizes their costs. And so, you think about it today is like that too, though, right? Like their job is to keep you healthy. Well, their job is to like not have you spend money. Well, but they don't proactively try to keep you healthy, right? So imagine a version of it where you're getting free blood work every three to six months. They're making recommendations based on it, right? Yeah. So I wouldn't say it's flipped. I would say that's a better version of yeah, a better version because the incentives are still like that, right? If you keep paying two hundred dollars a month and then you never get sick, that's awesome for them. But they're sort of living in this old economy where there was no real way to track a lot of the stuff. Okay, like now, right? I'm not saying like it's not like foolproof to know that people are walking. It's something as simple as walking, but it's a lot easier than it used to be to know if people are walking or going to the gym or like where they're buying food. You can probably link in your credit card, like. 
I'm not saying there's no ways to game that system. There are definitely ways someone could game like, oh, I bought like chocolate at Whole Foods and stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I mean, chocolate, there's worse things you could eat than chocolate. I, I, I sat on the bike in the gym yes. and watched TV for half an hour. My, yes. Or I attached my Fitbit to it, my dog. I, I threw it in the dryer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like there are ways to game the system. Yeah. But I'm just saying there are better ways now to track. I mean, you're seeing car insurance companies now. Uh, when I got car insurance for the first time, like a couple years ago, they basically gave me this little tracker to put in my car. And all it was tracking was two or three different things. One was like your speed versus the speed limit of the places you're driving. So are you driving like 20 miles an hour all the time over the speed limit? Then the deceleration rate. So like how much are you slamming on the brakes? And then there was like a third thing that I'm forgetting, but it was basically, there was no way your rate would go up, but based on the results, your rate could go down by up to 15%. So like, why would you not do that? Yeah, it's a good incentive. Right? And then they probably are getting a better sense for like, is this person going to cost us a shitload of money? So if it's a lot, maybe next year we'll raise it, right? Yeah. <laughs> <or something. laughs> but they just get better data, right? right? I could see a company, I mean, there's probably already a company that I just don't know about yeah. that's done a hundred percent risk factor based model like this instead of just using demographic info like oh you're a 25 year old male you must be a risk instead of like how you actually drive i would love it if they came out with just a patch you could wear that was constant monitoring for oh, yeah. blood glucose yeah. and like testosterone and cholesterol and whatever and just sent it over bluetooth to your phone that would be awesome i know there's a company working on there it has to be <laughs> but when that kind of stuff comes out if not one of our listeners should start that yeah somebody needs to make that company that would be a billion dollar company yeah. multi-billion and then that would make like health insurance so much easier yeah. and prescription so much easier. Yeah. It'd be like such a great way to figure out what's going on, especially if you could do interesting things. Like I was reading an article the other day that there's a pretty clear link between inflammation and depression. And so it may be that depression in a lot of people is a result of constant inflammation. And so you can actually treat depression with anti-inflammation yeah, drugs. So yeah, so you could go the other way, yeah. like use that. And it's yeah. pretty effective apparently, like that's kind of crazy. And then things that decrease inflammation are also effective on decreasing depression, right? And it's some of the things you would think about, like heat stress and yeah. exercise and like walking and moving around, yeah. right? And like eating better. It's funny how all these like ancient know, bits right? of advice are so right. Things we've known for thousands of years <laughs> and now we're just starting to get the signs to explain right, exactly. why they work. Yeah. It's like, well, I mean, that was in the Old Testament, yeah. right? Like people have known this for a while but, and now we can explain it. Or even it. before that, right? You talk like Romans or like probably even before that, but it was not in a language that was either preserved or like translatable to Latin. Yeah. My, my friend sent me a, uh, it was a translation of ancient Roman or ancient Greek physical training guide for, yeah. it was for soldiers or for. Well, was it like deadlift? Like, basically run? it was like pick up heavy things yeah. consistently and eat a lot yeah. and run. It's like, oh, it's basically the same. Yeah. It, well, it's, it's very obvious stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. But it's funny it's to think about it's obvious now though but it's like yeah. it's always shocks me that like people knew this stuff way back right. even though it shouldn't it shouldn't shock us but because it's not like humans came out of nowhere 3,000 years ago it's like no humans have been around quite a while longer before those 3,000 years and actually the you know you see this all over the place but I forget what it was that I was listening to recently but it was the idea of does the rule or like the sort of like codified rule come first or is it the behavior that comes first and then it's codified as a rule? Oh, definitely behavior. Definitely behavior. Yeah. Yeah, definitely behavior. <laughs> if so, anybody hasn't listened to our anti-fragile episode, you should go listen to oh, it because it's, it's teaching birds how to fly. Yes, right. right. Okay, yeah, there yeah, we go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it came up again recently as something I was listening to that was not 
our own episode. I promise. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, sp- I suppose we should hop back to the book. Yeah. yeah. That was a fun tangent. That was a great tangent. So the last thing on the parallels between the church and the state is they give all these examples of what was going on in the church when it was declining and before it was declining. And it's cool to see how that ties into what's going on or some of the stuff going on now. So we'll just run through the list. They basically say that there's like really high direct costs of being part of the church from the tithes, taxes, and the fees. There were religious doctrines that made savings difficult, demanding you to donate to the church and the poor to avoid being a miser. I don't know if that one carries over so much because I think there is a good savings ethos in the yeah. U.S., but I think well, this idea- maybe. There might be a savings ethos, but there's also a lot of people without savings. Well, I was going to say culturally- there's definitely a spending ethos. Yes. But I don't think that's a government thing. I don't think it's a government thing either. Yeah. I think it's just sort of a cultural thing. Although, and this is kind of related to that, all of my friends who I know who are more entrepreneurial and do the nomad thing, they're all really savings oriented, right? Like I think if you work for yourself for a couple of months, your perspective on money and savings just completely changes. Totally. You don't think of an income as something that you're going to always have. There's, you get much more used to the feast or famine. And honestly, I mean, I just went through that transition again, where like I used to be in more of the, you know, like I wouldn't say like I used to be an entrepreneur, then I stopped, then I was again, Mm -hmm. but it's more that like I was definitely previously much more used to feast or famine. And then when you get on a retainer consultant contract, it's essentially the same thing as a salary. And that was like two and a half years of that, right? And so like, this is my first month of being not on that. And it's like very cool to see the perception shift in my own head about this, even though I've previously been in this position before. So it's like- it's like readjusting to Yeah, it. exactly. Yeah. Um, and then when you switch to from the feast state to the famine state, yes, <laughs> where you're like, okay, I'm gonna not make a lot of money these next few months to focus right. on other stuff and just having to watch your bank account go but down. You also, but you also treat the feast stuff as much more like, uh, you know, let's say you get an influx of cash. It's not like, oh, I can spend all this right. amount. It's like, okay, I can maybe spend a little bit of it, but I should probably save some of it because it's not gonna stay like this all the time. We can't assume next month will be as good. Yeah. 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 Although I would say just one thing on the government-driven savings or government-driven consumption, mm-hmm. say there is one big incentive that does drive consumption over savings, which is that our taxes, most of our taxes are income-driven, income taxes, and not consumption taxes, right? Like arguably, if we really wanted to incentivize savings, you could tax consumption more than income being the biggest driver. And then that would, you know, you'd spend less money because things would be more expensive. Right, right. Hopefully not giving people ideas because I think all that would happen right now. I don't couldn't see income taxes really going down. I could just see them adding consumption taxes. So scratch that idea if the government's listening. Exactly. (laughs) Don't listen. That's a horrible idea. That's the funny thing with living in Texas is it's like, oh, yeah, no state income tax. And then you go buy anything and you're like, oh, God, that hurts. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a high consumption tax. Right. What is it in Texas? Oh, it's like almost 10%. It's almost 10% in New York. Yeah, in New York, it's pretty high, too. (laughs) Let's see. There's a few other things they have here. Uh, When Protestant denominations arose, there was that competition within the church, so leading to less regulation. I think this is what we'd see in other countries being good places to live instead of the one that you grew up in. That could be this form of competition. The Protestant church did away with much of the ceremonial excess of the Catholic church. Is that like festivals and like Yeah, all the festivals. And- <laughs> well, they talked about all the festivals and the fasting and everything. It was so crazy. I had no idea there were that many rules back then. Yeah. <laughs> where I think they said that there were so many rules about sex that you could only have sex like 55 days of the year. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> yes. With your wife. Yeah, like, with your yeah. wife, right? <laughs> yeah. It was outlawed on like three days of the week and then there's Lent and and then during all these other ceremonies, you can't. And so. it was like before and after certain ceremonies, like you weren't allowed right, to. Right, you weren't allowed to do But it. then also like contrasting that with how 
the clergy was behaving. Well, then like, the, the church ran prostitution yeah. rings. That was the craziest thing. <laughs> like, and like they, orgies. <laughs> oh my God. The orgy stories were hilarious. Yeah. But let's see. So the other one was, yeah, the ceremonial excess. I think the ban on interest on money was a really That's a big one. Yeah. yeah. Because we don't have that problem as much, yeah. but the fact that the church was holding and taking so much money and that you couldn't earn interest on your own is similar to if you're not paying an income tax or at least not nearly as much tax as we are now, you can make so much more money over your lifetime. Right, they gave the analogy. Although I would say the amounts they gave, so I'm going to preface what I'm about to say with the fact that they were living in a world of much higher interest rates. So like the assumptions they were using were 10 or 20%. Like they gave two different numbers. One was assuming a 10% interest rate for the rest of your life. And another one was assuming a 20% interest rate for the rest of your life, which, you know, like we don't live in that world. Like it used to be the case in the oh, 80s and 90s. Would it be in 96? Yeah. yeah. Now it's like, you know, if you get 0.1%. Point, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I saw in one of my bank accounts, I have like a 1.15%. I was so happy. I was like, yes, this is like the highest <laughs> since I turned 18, like that's ever been. Um, so yeah, so we don't have that. But they were saying like for every $5,000, you're able to save. Do you remember the exact number? Oh yeah, it was something like it was in the millions. You though. make yeah millions of extra dollars over yeah. your lifetime, right? So. And uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a no time assumption in. Well, yeah, it's over eight. forty years right. or That's something, right? So you'd have to do it you know, now, and then you right. get it when you're seventy. And then they're using compounding interest, right? So the fact that it's twenty percent for forty years compounded, like it adds up. But so we don't live in that high of an interest rate world. But the point is just that it's a significant amount of money for every dollar that you're not taxed, assuming you don't go spend it immediately. Right. Well, I actually, because I'm self-employed, you're not paying taxes every time you make money, but I much prefer to just pay the minimum in each of the quarterly installments yeah, and yeah. then just do a lump sum based on what's due at the end of the year, because you can use that money so much better than they can, right? Yeah, or they're and giving an interest-free loan. Yeah, you're giving them an interest-free loan all year, right? That's why it's so much better to not get a return as well. This might be the inner libertarian in me that's saying that but it's funny how like if you're late on your taxes you have to pay interest yeah. but when you give them and anybody who's on a w-2 does this all year right. where you're giving them money every time you get a paycheck they're holding it for you till it's actually due at the end of the year but you don't get interest back when you get your refund you just get the flat amount back <laughs> and if yeah and if you send them too much right yeah right exactly there's you don't get paid interest it's actually kind of crazy that you're paying into it from the beginning of the year so you start paying 2017's taxes January 2017. They don't get right. filed until April 2018. So it's yeah. almost a year and a half that you could be earning interest on that money. Yeah. That you're not. Right. Yeah, that sucks. Exactly. IRS for listening, that is a yeah. good idea that you should implement and give people interest on their money. Yeah, well, my, my accountant told me, they were like, they were like, technically you should increase your quarterly contributions to be like 100% in line. It'll be fine if you don't, but it'll be smart. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like it's in a bank account, it's safe, right. but I'm not, not getting like, free loans <laughs> right. to the government. <laughs> so we talked about government a lot, but I think there's other people that this information yeah. is just decreasing the power of. And I think the only reason we're focusing so much on government, because it's the one that hasn't fully been seen yet, in my opinion. Well, right. and it's the one that I think we don't realize as much, yes. right? right. But I think that the other big ones they call out like news organizations, right? Yeah. We'll get back to that in a second, universities and then experts. I think we've seen that really play out. Like, Oh, yeah. Those know, three are so clear now, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like the compared to 20 years ago to now even when they were writing this, the idea of news has really... They had like analogies in this book to social media. 
And it was something where they had like yeah. they used like customized media. I think was yeah. the name of like the section. I was like, holy shit! <laughs> yeah, they were like, you will be able to make like a feed of the news sources that you that are like, which will send you more articles based on what they think you'll like. Yeah, if you're interested in like cats and traveling or yeah. something, then you'll get more information about cats and traveling. I was like, oh my god! Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I think the only reason why we've been harping so much on like the government authority part is just like, at least to me, I found that that was probably the most intriguing. They also spent the most time on it, but I thought that to be the most intriguing just because the other stuff, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is exactly what happened. But even if it's not totally clear, right? I mean, universities are losing authority rapidly where people are realizing they can learn things. You hear a lot about that on NetChat. You can. (laughs) (laughs) But people are realizing they can self-educate for most of the stuff that they thought they had to get in a university and that their degree isn't really teaching them anything that valuable and just giving them $200,000 of debt. Like something's going to have to change with that. But there was really no other option pre-internet age, right? Like, what were you going to do if you didn't go to university, right? It'd be kind of stuck. It's also like a bit of a critical mass issue, right? It's like now enough people do it. It's not that weird to like hire somebody who maybe went a non-traditional route. Yeah, it's not that strange. Well, and what's been cool is startup companies don't care, you know, if you didn't go to college, as long as you're good at what you do. And because- It goes back to what we're talking about, the task economy versus like the job, having a job thing. Like if a startup's hiring you to do something, not to have a job, but to do something, and you can do that something, there's nothing prevent, like why would they not hire They probably should hire you over the person who has the college degree because they can pay you less. Yeah, theoretically, yeah. Like someone coming out of like Harvard or something or MIT is gonna expect a higher salary. Oh, yeah, probably be so entitled to it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also to be fair, like they're gonna have more debt so they're gonna have to- Make a certain amount make of money. More, yeah, so yeah. it's only like the old economy companies I think that are probably still, would be very resistant to hiring people. Well, that's why I brought up the startups is that because these older companies are losing such good talent to the startups, they've been having to adjust to be more like them. So they're doing more remote working allowances. They're letting people dress more casually. They're taking people who have you know different degrees or no degree because they have to. All of the good talent goes to these startups, right? right? Or people who want to work independently. Like I'm seeing a lot of that too, like where people are very happy to take on contractors or consultants. You know, and some of that is big companies like taking on consultants in general, but I think there's a structural shift too, where they're leaning more towards that type of work as opposed to like bring on an employee for something. You almost have to sometimes because I think this is a big problem with hiring internet marketers is that anybody who's good, yeah. or like really good at internet marketing can make a lot of money on their own. Right. And so even a $100,000 a year salary is usually not going to be that attractive right. to them. Right. So it's like, right. well, how do you hire them, right? Yeah. You can't, you have to do contract work, right? Exactly. So... Yeah. And I think the news organizations, obviously, we've seen that just rapidly decline. I think there's a new article that Nat wrote about fake news. Well, it is a real problem. It is. It's it's not in the way Trump talks about it, right? Where he's like, oh, everything about me is fake. Like, No, there were actually that few people at your inauguration. Like, that's pretty clear. But there is a lot of BS reporting. Yeah, I mean, he's not. And I think he does this a lot. But he does this a lot where he'll take something with like definitely a kernel of truth to it. Like, there is definitely fake news. Like, I don't think any of us will argue that all the news on the internet is real. Like, it's not. (laughs) And same thing, even everything that comes out of, like, quote unquote, trusted sources is not necessarily real either. Well, you'll catch, like, the New York Times making mistakes, like, pretty frequently. I think CNN has had breaking news as its, like, tag thing for the last, like, maybe ever since I ever watched CNN, which was, like... There's breaking news every, like, five minutes. Have you ever seen it not say breaking news? I never watch CNN. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) If somebody listening does watch CNN and has ever seen it say not 
breaking yeah. news please take a screenshot or like send it <laughs> to, to us i've never seen it <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so they, they've lost a lot of authority and for most news i mean i almost prefer twitter or reddit right wisdom of the crowds is going to be a little better and also at least you go into that with a bit of skepticism there's like again this um, it might have come up in the anti-fragile i'm not sure but like when you go into something thinking, oh, this is coming from an authority and you're trusting it completely. There's a different sense. Like I know if I go to Twitter or Reddit, I'm going in there with a a skeptic's brain of like, okay, this is probably not true. I should click on the article. I shouldn't just look at the headline. I should like fact check what's in the article. But yeah, but if you see something like I still fall into this, if I see like, oh, it's a New York Times link, of course it's right. But it's not always right. It's like sometimes it's right, sometimes it's not. Well, and then it like gets you with opinion articles sometimes too, right? Yeah, the editorials. Yeah. yeah. So I I think we've definitely seen the news trust decrease. Like 50 years ago when you only had a few channels or whatever and ABC Nightly News was on, it was probably pretty reliable or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was equally unreliable, but nobody knew. But as you said, there's no way to know. Like just like the doctor thing, there's no way to know. Now somebody posts an article and then you can immediately be like, "Mm, that's not quite right. Like it took two minutes of Googling to figure that out. It was like the Google memo stuff, right? Where everybody was, or there were a lot of articles saying there was stuff in it that just wasn't there. And then you had the document yeah. <laughs> in another tab and you go look at it and be like, it doesn't say that anywhere. Yeah. Like, what, did you even read it? Right? The answer's probably not. The answer's probably right? not. Yeah, yeah rushing to get stories out. Uh, and then experts, like we already talked about, yeah. right? The, the expert has really decreased in value when you can fact check them. But I think in, in my opinion, what they mean by expert is like people who are credentialed experts. And I think right. now it's like, and it's becoming increasingly so that if you are actually an expert, you're actually more valuable and you can be completely uncredentialed yeah Yeah. and you can be totally uncredentialed yeah Yeah. like i mean you don't have a degree in marketing but not at all (laughs) (laughs) so the means of establishing authority i think are very different where you kind of have to go off of experience and work done when i say experience i mean things you have accomplished as opposed to the past job resumes where it was like oh you need eight years as an accountant right well you can spend eight years and learn absolutely nothing like you could have negative knowledge at the end of it because you've just forgotten the stuff that you learned for your cpa or i mean there's a lot of things i mean i've been thinking about this a lot lately is like when somebody let's say spent eight years in a let's say an accounting company like a larger accounting company there's a lot of things you get good at that are not transferable skills right Right. you were really good at navigating that organization you were really good at sort of like giving off that company's ethos but maybe not so much at your accounting job but you still got promoted because you were really good at working that organization well it's funny too when you see people are hiring and they have no idea about what they're hiring for right or where they're setting requirements for hiring someone but they clearly just don't understand the role so there was one going around twitter the other day that was like uh this developer needs five years of experience programming in swift right which which is only been around for three years (laughs) or uh old companies trying to get into blockchain and crypto stuff five years experience well yeah they're like 10 years of blockchain technology experience it's like it was invented in 2008 right (laughs) what what are you expecting here but people who get it know that it's not really about the years or the degree anymore it's like what have you done right and also we all know years are not equal to each other like one year for somebody might be 10 years for somebody else and 10 years for someone else might be like six months for someone else so well that was the problem with malcolm gladwell's ten thousand hour rules oversimplification was that you can easily spend ten thousand hours and learn nothing but you can also get near that level in you know two or three or four thousand hours if you're like very deliberate about how you're practicing so yeah no there's it's changing yeah so I think that gives us a good segue into the death of the nation state, the life and death of the nation state. Started off morbid. I know. Yeah. 
death of the nation state. Well, that's the important part here. <laughs> yeah. So I, it's a lot about taxation. And again, you know, these guys are very strong libertarian bent, which isn't bad. It's just the frame to read a lot of this from, I think. Yeah. And it's where you maybe have to check some of their uh, examples. But I, I love this quotation. If you went into a store to buy furniture and the salespeople took your money, but then proceeded to ignore your requests and consult others about how to spend your money, you would quite rightly be upset. The fact that something very like this happens in dealings with governments shows how little control its customers actually have. Yeah, and this whole section is about transitioning from this taxation-based nation state where they just take your money and then you hope that they're doing something good with it right. to one where you're more of a customer and you're paying for the things that you want. It's very interesting if you, I mean, you've traveled a lot and I mean, you talk to people who live in the places that you travel. Like a few years ago, I went to Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. And uh, my family has some family friends over there. So we were staying with them and I got to know them pretty well. And there were like one big question I had was, uh, I think it was Norway, where public transportation in a particular city that we were in, Bergen, seemed to be free. Like I was just like, well, there's no place to pay. Like I don't, I didn't understand that. So later on that day, I was like asking that family, you know, so is it just free or is it, do you guys pay like, you know, a tax or something? They're like, yeah, public transportation comes out of our taxes. Like that's what taxes are. And they looked at me like I was asking a really dumb question. They're like, well, that's what taxes are for. And it was sort of an eye-opening moment for me where I was like, wow, they pay taxes and they expect to get something in return, like something direct in return. And then we got into a long discussion and it's like the same idea behind like, okay, education is quote unquote free in these countries, but they go into it thinking that's part of the bargain. Like they're paying these taxes in exchange for that being something that their society gets. Same thing with health insurance, right? So they go in, like they know this is the bargain. Whereas, I mean, like I hate to, you know, sort of shit on the US for a second, (laughs) but like, okay, we pay a ton in taxes, right? Living in New York, you still pay a decent amount for the subway. And I'm coming from DC, the amount the metro costs is is ridiculous. From where my parents are, it's like 550 each way on the metro. But you're paying all these taxes and you're not... You don't no see direct. the benefit as much. Yeah, I'm not saying we don't see any benefit. Obviously, money goes to like the military and there are transfer payments and things like... There are things it goes to, but we don't have that mentality of we're paying taxes and we expect as a customer to get something in return. So it's not quite that customer relationship, which is, I think, what they're talking about that governments will increasingly have to go to if they want to attract the best talent. Yeah. And they'll have to operate as a good business in providing those services, yeah, too. Yeah. At an affordable cost. And I mean, speaking of public transportation for a second, we're really going to see that if and when self-driving cars become legitimate thing. I don't know about all cars becoming self-driving in the near future, but if they can figure out partially the legal stuff, you know, and then the technology as well, especially for cities, it makes a ton of sense. And if they're electric cars, how is public transportation going to, even like a $2 subway ride is not going to be able to compete with a a Uber pool. That's actually one of Uber's goals is to replace public transit in major cities. Yeah. And it's going to be way better. Like you don't have to worry about the stop. The stop is your house or your apartment (laughs) and it can drop you literally where you need to go. Well, it'll, it'll change a lot of property values. Yeah. Oh yeah. New York rent is so different based on if you're like a two minute walk from the subway or a 20 minute walk from the subway. It's totally different. It's like an order of magnitude. (laughs) different. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's like things like that are going to continue to erode the monopoly that government has over a lot of these things right now. And I think the other part of that is this idea of a percentage tax. He gives this other example that we both really liked, 
where if imagine if a phone company sent you a bill for $50,000 because your phone call to London scored you a $125,000 deal, right? It's like if a business charged you based on how much money you made using the business, right? You'd be like, mm, I don't think so. But that's essentially what governments do, right? And the reason that they have to do it is that you have, and they give this distinction in the book, you have tax payers and tax consumers where above a certain income, you're contributing way more to the tax pool than you're getting out of it. And below a certain income, you're getting way more than you're putting into it just because of right how incomes work out. And so if you actually move towards this customer mentality, there would have to be, I guess, more of a fair balance. But it would be hard to have any kind of welfare state if people were paying equal amounts. And that's, I think, their conclusion that they go towards, right? It really does become difficult to support something like that not from a politics standpoint, but more from a who exactly is going to be the one paying for it. If money can flee the country that easily and it's not easy to track any of that, like where's the money for that kind of thing going to come from? That was the part of the book I had the biggest problem with. And I don't know what problem, but struggled with the most because you have to wonder, it's like, okay, this all makes sense. And yes, the rich people will be able to live wherever they want and not pay any taxes. But as- What happens to the rest of- Yeah. Yeah. Do we just condemn everyone who can't do that, right? right? Does it become like- So I think um, I'd read a little bit about this before and there was actually- uh, We'll find we'll put this in the show notes, but there was a segment that I saw on YouTube at some point of somebody was asking Ron Paul what would happen if the government didn't fund healthcare, right? And I mean, he's old enough that he was saying like back when he first started practicing, his first job was actually with a church hospital. And so his take on it was we would return more to a state of not necessarily government-driven welfare, but community-driven welfare. Maybe that's overly optimistic, and I don't think these authors would necessarily agree with that. Maybe they would. I don't know. I don't want to put words in their mouth, but... When things shift, doesn't necessarily mean that this function won't happen. It just means it might be done through a different mechanism. Might be done through more voluntary means. I mean, rich people do donate money. Yeah, no, they do. And this, well, okay, so this gets into interesting territory. And this this will be like maybe a potentially unpopular thing to say. But as I was thinking about it, do you, I mean, you don't take care of poor people in China, right? You don't take care of poor people in India, Right. right? You're not taking care of poor people in Africa. So what's special about other people in America? And okay, obviously you're paying to be a part of the country, right? That's what the income tax is going to, is this level of protection and a certain amount of the rights that it provides you with. But if you actually saw a major, I guess, like revolution within the country where you have, like, let's even take the Trump example, where you've got a certain percentage of America that's like very anti-immigrant and very anti, maybe like anti-technology, anti-information elite. And if you told me like, hey, Nat, we're going to just like break California off from the country and it's going to be almost like a Galt's Gulch, whatever scenario. And it's just going to be its own country. And, you know, it's like information elite only be like, fuck, yeah, I'm going right. And then I would as soon as I was out of the US, I would feel no obligation to be like taking care of the people in it. Right. So I can actually really imagine a situation where whatever you want to call them, the like white collar elite, just start leaving the US if it becomes economically reasonable to do so. And as that continues to happen, average wage and whatnot in the US will just continue to go down and it will become harder and harder to sustain this lifestyle for everyone who's been feeding off the benefits of it. Right. And yeah, it's like weird because you think of yourself as, you know, an American as part of the country. 
but it's becoming increasingly easy. And I've talked to a lot of people who've thought about this too. It's becoming increasingly easy to imagine not living in America for the rest of my life, right? I really wouldn't be surprised if you know, maybe it gets even crazier or whatever. And then all the finance stuff moves to like Singapore, the tech stuff moves to, I don't know, I'm not sure exactly where it would go, maybe somewhere in Europe or Japan. And like, I'd be relatively happy to do that, right? I've lived in a lot of other cool places. And there's honestly, there's nothing, this sounds like very unpatriotic or whatever, but there's nothing that special, quote unquote, about America, right? It, It used to be like, oh, freedom and economic opportunity. And you can get that pretty much everywhere now. Right. It's been exported a lot. It's been exported a lot. And okay, yeah, if you're in Vietnam, the government's going to shut off the internet every now and then. You can't like go on Google and China and stuff. It's okay, you avoid those countries. But if you go to Paris, there's nothing that you don't have that you have here, right? I think, yeah, we are, we're living in a result of a very interesting experiment, which is what America is. But yeah, I'm curious too to see like what happens. I mean, especially if things do continue to get worse, which uh, and I'm talking like the structural fabric of yeah. <laughs> uh, America, like continues to get more and more split. It'll be very interesting. And it's also like, there's something to be said for this is society as large as ours. That's so diverse, not just like ethnically, but in types of people, opinions, people always say like, oh, America doesn't have as many people as China, but China is much more homogenous yeah. than America is. Well, and there's a very shared mentality and shared ethos there. And right? there's a very, very strong central government. So it's like you don't even I mean, they probably think of themselves as individuals, but it's to a lesser extent than I think what we have. Because we've all been grown up thinking we're special, we're unique, we're whatever we are. Right. So like, but that's what everyone in America grows up with that ethos. because That's the country's ethos. So we're 300 million plus individuals. Very individuals. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I can see how that wouldn't be that sustainable. And I can also there's kind of an argument to be made against diversity in that Mm -hmm. sense. In like an intellectual diversity sense, right? Because I mean, I actually do think that in many ways... Don't quote Nat as saying he's anti-diversity. <laughs> well, and this is probably a whole separate discussion, but I think at least for smart people, we're like fairly past the point of judging people based on race, gender, any of that. It's much more based on how they think. And the degree of intellectual diversity, not in like a, you know, oh, I went to Harvard and studied liberal arts way, but in a, like, you know, you've got one part of the country that thinks that all Muslims are terrorists and another part of the country that's like, well, you know, no. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm not sure if that much difference in thought is like sustainable in a... But I don't even know if it's so geographic, right? So like we are still using geographic terms of like, oh, part of the country, or maybe I'm interpreting it geographically, but it's like a part of the country thinks this, a part of the country thinks that. I think it's like, we could all li- literally be living in the same building. And there are people in that building who fall in this camp of, you know, they think all Muslims are terrorists or another camp that thinks, you know, like we shouldn't have the internet. You know, like yeah. I'm saying like, like there are parts of, you know, let's say the country that are predominantly or more so in each of these camps than the other parts. But that doesn't mean it's like, so I don't, basically where I'm going with this is like, I don't see like a civil war type scenario that's like as simple as North versus South. Like, it's not like that. Like, that was way simpler. It was like, these states have slavery, these states do not. And then that's what we're arguing over. But it's not quite that simple anymore. Something else I read recently that was, it was funny because I read it yesterday and then we were doing this episode today, nice. <laughs> but it's a book called The Revolt of the Masses by uh, Ortega y Gasset. And it's a, he's a Spanish philosopher and he wrote this in like 1930. And what he talks about in the book is some of the stuff that leads to like social uprising. And one of the big things he mentions is a different shared future, 
right? So what brings a community together isn't that they have some blood union or like a shared past or whatever. It's that they believe in a shared future together. And I feel like that's where a lot of these problems come from is these differing ideas on what the future should be, obviously. And I think like what you said is totally true that it won't be a North versus South geographic thing. I think there is some geography. There is definitely some, but it's yeah, not entirely. And so that's why it's kind of compelling to hear the arguments in the book that the people who feel like they don't belong anymore will just leave. Right. It's like it will be so easy to create your own kind of pseudo country community in another area where you can get the land for cheaper or something and you can bring a group together based on more of like a shared future and shared ideas, right? right? That's a very realizable future. And there are already communities that kind of do that, right? You know, you can go on nomad list and join the digital nomad community. And then whenever you're in a new city, you've got a bunch of friends with a shared, you know, shared goals that you can tap into. And do you feel that too? Like I know whenever I've traveled and tapped into communities like that, it's you don't feel like you're in a different country even sometimes because, you know, it feels like you brought home with you in some ways. Yeah. And it kind of creates that interesting idea. And they, they talk about it a bit too, but like, what does it really mean to live somewhere in the future? And at the extreme end of it, they basically say that you're just paying the local government for protection and a certain number of services, right? Like roads and uh, infrastructure. And then, but you can like move around way more uh, mobily. Which is, yeah. I would actually say that that was like my senior like thesis class was around the constitution like the formation of the constitution essentially so like i know at that time when i was looking at everything it really seemed like from how everything was worded that's almost what the original idea of america was it's this like loose community of states that are coming together and each state kind of has its own local issues or local decisions right that they're going to make that's the idea behind the whole federal system and then there's like a certain things like protection Right. And then an interstate mail system at that time. Right. And then eventually roads also. So like certain things were done at the federal level, but most things were sort of relegated to the individual state level. And there was no federal income tax at that point. It was like there were states had to contribute a certain amount, but that was done via their state income. You know, so they would figure that out locally. It almost seems like a return to that, but even on a more micro level, which is possible now, right? right. Because it's, again, it's a shift from the agricultural industrial society to this digital society. So you can do that scale. Like it doesn't have to be 13 colonies. You could see 13,000, col- you know, essential oh, yeah. colonies. Um, yeah. So it's very, very interesting how that shift is happening. It would be cool to see what countries allow that kind of yeah. dominion first, because yeah. I think the U.S. would be one of the last. I think so, because they have the most to lose from the existing order, right? If you're yeah. number one in something, you don't want to change the game. You don't want to change the <laughs> game. You keep yeah, the game exactly. the same. <laughs> <laughs> like Thailand actually just came out with a visa for digital nomads, Oh, very where cool. you can live in Thailand for four years and work online. I don't think you really have to pay any tax or whatever. They're just doing it to help stimulate the economy because they were trying to fight these people, right? Like they were doing raids on co-working places in Chiang Mai and stuff, Uh, like literally police rushing in and like grabbing people's laptops and stuff. But I think they just said, you know what? These people are actually really good for our economy. They're bringing a lot of money into the country. Let's bring in more of them. And that kind of response is going to play much better in the future. And then here's the other thing is like in the past, I think the more powerful countries tended to be, at least in this current generation we're in, you know, the larger physically, you know, geographically large and population right. large right. countries like the United States, like China, like India, like Russia, Brazil, Brazil, like it made a big difference to be natural resource rich as well as population rich. But in the future, you could see a country like Thailand or even smaller 
dominate. Like, well, I mean, the richest country in the world is either New York or San Francisco. Yeah. Right. (laughs) If you think about it, like that's really where the money is. And if all of Silicon Valley just kind of left or if all of Silicon Valley just made its own country right now, I imagine it would be like one of the top 10 richest countries in the world. I think California would be like the sixth richest country by itself. When you combine LA and SF area, right? Because you've got Hollywood and you've got all the tech. So And you've got a ton of natural resources as well. And uh, yeah, they should just do it. They should just start their own country. Dude, I would be over there in a heartbeat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it depended on what that country was, but yeah. Oh, yeah. But you know what? I trust them. Like I would much. Depends who's in charge too. Is it one of the LA people or is it one of the San Francisco people? Okay, yeah. Hopefully hopefully San Francisco. (laughs) If the LA people are running it, it might be like... uh, uh, I can't remember the example that I'm getting to here. I'd, never mind. Just forget that Arnold part. Schwarzenegger. But, he's okay. Well, no, Schwarzenegger. Yeah. I think you could argue that he was generally good. Yeah. Good ideas. I think he got hamstrung by his like other people in the state. Yeah. But good middle line politician. Yeah. Or it'd be Elon Musk or like. That's what I was going to say. Is that if you get somebody like an Elon Musk, you know, he doesn't have enough to do right now. So Elon Musk, if you want another job, you can run for president. Uh, he could be oh sick. man, he would win. He would win so yeah. fast. <laughs> That's he can I, handle three full-time jobs. Yeah, well, but what? that was kind of my thing was uh, if somebody were going to create a new country, I would want it to be like a completely new government structure, oh, right? Yeah, because right. you, and there's this point that is sort of always made in the startup world that you don't change a paradigm by iterating on it, like, or you don't change a system by iterating on it to change it. You really have to blow it up and start fresh. I mean, that's what we've seen with everything, right? Like Uber wasn't a small improvement on the taxi industry, right? It's, it was South America. That's America what we saw America. not yeah. an iteration on the monarchy system of exactly. Europe. Like it was a totally arguably new thing. You could say, okay, the Greeks did some similar things, but it was a new thing. They came together and they drafted a constitution, which was, it wasn't a change of an existing document. It was a new document. Um, and this information age country will probably have to be completely newly structured, right? Yeah. And that's what makes me so, you know, as I was reading this, I felt myself getting like more and more pessimistic about the future of our existing country. Um, and the, the reason is that I got to that same conclusion of like, you kind of have to blow it up and start fresh. So where my mind went was we would almost need a new constitutional convention, but I can't see that happening. Like I can't see our people ever agreeing that that would even be necessary. Like, let's say right now the Democrats were like, okay, guys, like this clearly isn't working. We need to have a new constitutional convention and like write up a whole new constitution, which basically means you're dissolving the current government. I don't think the Republicans would be like, cool, guys, that sounds great. Like, I don't think Trump would be so happy about that. And then if the reverse happened, like if the Republicans called that when Obama was president, I couldn't see the Democrats ever being like, "Okay, yeah, let's dissolve the government and like come together. So basically, I don't know if that kind of agreement is possible without some type of like mega crisis happening where like everything's falling apart. Well, I don't I don't think it would be America. I don't think. No, but I'm saying if that was ever going to be America to do that, it would have to be like. Like, that's my point. Like, I don't see it happening, which is why, like, if you're actually a country that's in the dumps right now, you might have a much better shot of becoming this new country. Well, honestly, what I could really see is somebody like Peter Thiel coming out and saying, hey, we've bought up a ton of land in, you know, Central America or something from the Brazilian government. We're starting a new country like me and, you know, these other whatever geniuses are working together on like a new constitution, whatever for it. And you can like apply for citizenship from the U.S., right? That doesn't sound so crazy, right? It doesn't, right. Like, I'm saying what sounds crazy is like America yeah, making that shift, change, right? Yeah, yeah like, there'd be no way. Right. Yeah. I don't see that quite happening. <laughs> we should probably return to some book stuff. So 
oh yeah, we should talk about scale of violence, right? How the democratic nation state has been succeeding. Because they say that the nation state's been living for this long, for the last 200 years, because of these returns to violence. And it's kind of like what you talked about with land and people. Or I think the factory idea too, right? Like a factory is a physical place that can be tracked and taxed and people can hold it hostage, essentially. How did you understand what they meant by increasing scale of violence and returns to violence? Because I didn't totally get okay, that definition, my, I think. Okay, I'll say how I interpreted it was like, okay, so let's say like the biggest companies in the world, let's say we're like GM, let's just use, G- use GM a lot as an example in the book. So let's just say GM at a certain point in time was one of the biggest companies in the world and probably still is. It's a lot easier to hold GM hostage than it is to hold Google hostage. Although Google has a lot of people, a lot of employees, the software doesn't really exist in one entity. So whereas like you could tie up GM's production forever, right? If you just like the government's like, nope, you haven't paid your taxes, GM, like we're going to shut down the plants and that's it. Like there's no like cyberspace factory that like doesn't exist. Whereas like I would imagine if the US government made a move against Google was like, hey, we're going to shut down Google. Like this company can't operate. There would, I'm sure there might be a backup plan in place. Let's just put it that way for Google to like continue to exist. So I think that's how I interpreted it, their returns on violence thing. And it's not just governments, it could even be employees or whatever. In the sort of uh, industrial era, that type of thing was doable. Like you could, as even an employee, right, you could do a strike, shut down the plant, and the company would kind of have to negotiate with you. Although even today, I can't see like a company taking Google hostage. The employees really couldn't either. I mean, maybe if all the developers revolted at the same time. Progress could stop, but yeah. I don't... But they, oh, that's a good point. They couldn't hold the company hostage. Like, there's no physical place to... Like, I mean, there is the office. Although, to be fair, some people, I imagine, in Google could shut it down. Yeah, right. There'd probably be certain people, maybe... Who know, who have, like, a kill switch or something. I don't something. know. If anyone knows, like, how... Com- like, yeah, at all, like, I'm just very curious what the backup plans how are. How do they protect themselves from being held hostage by their employees? Espionage or... Yeah, uh, yeah espionage from other companies. They, they must have a plan or a yeah. system for it. It's probably Larry Page just has like a switch in his bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> you just turn it off if you get <laughs> some mess with yeah, the like, world. Do these things persist? Like, what if someone took like you know the CEO hostage? Can the CEO do it? Like, do they have the authority even to do it just as one person? You know, like I, I don't yeah. know how these systems work. But I'm just saying, I would imagine like a website is much harder to shut down than a factory. Yeah, that's all I'm true. saying. It's like a lot harder to make a website hostage. Well, especially from the point of view of government. Yes. Right. So more employees too. More employees. Yeah. yeah. But but I think for the context here of the democratic nation state succeeding, kind of like that organized crime example, it's way easier for the government to be like, well, we're letting you have this, right. you know, place in the country, so you're going to have to pay. Whereas if it's, you know, a website, it's like, okay, well, peace, you know, going to South America. Right. I mean, actually companies are, like Google routes a lot of their income through Ireland, I think. Apple. I think Apple's Apple. Ireland. Okay. Yeah. yeah. They've got some hundreds of billions of dollars stored overseas. Oh, overseas, right. Yeah. That they just can't bring back into the US because then they have to pay taxes on it. So they're keeping it over there. And I think they're like, I don't know, buying plants in China and stuff using the money they're storing in Ireland or wherever so that they just have all this income they never pay taxes on. Or never pay US taxes on. U- US taxes for sure, on. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's kind of that example mm-hmm. that you're seeing. And that's actually a good example of sort of the sovereign individual cyber economy, you know, transcending yeah. borders on a really massive scale where it's not just you know, nomads on their computers, they can also be huge companies doing it. But I think what's really interesting is companies have always sort of done, like I know I saw this thing about like GE, like avoiding taxes. Yeah, they barely paid any corporate taxes in the US. And I mean, they're a physical business. So like big companies, a lot of times have been able to get away with certain loopholes. But I think what's really interesting about this is that like you as an individual now can also 
increasingly have these same abilities that only big companies had before. Yeah. And that really rich people had before. Yeah. Really rich people as well. Yeah. That's true as well. It doesn't have to be companies. I was talking about this with a friend where it would actually be extremely easy right now to go to, you know, the Bahamas or wherever, start a investment company kind of like Wealthfront, right? Like an automated robo investor that anybody could buy into. But then in order to invest in it, you have to invest like via Bitcoin from the US. And so then literally any of us could extremely easily earn interest, like tax-free interest on investments because none of that would be tracked by the US government, right? And none of our buying into it would be tracked either. And so something that traditionally, you know, you can only be really rich if you wanted to go open a bank account in the Bahamas or wherever and like invest through it and make money. Now anybody can do it for almost like trivially easy. There would be a real like regulatory nightmare setting it up and you'd probably get banned from coming back into the US or whatever, right? <laughs> but it wouldn't be that hard to set up and it would be completely untrackable to see if anybody in the US is buying into it. Right. Anybody yeah. can do that now, Yeah. right? It's kind of crazy. Yeah, and as more and more kind of money and business goes that way, like we always have to remember, it's very easy to forget that everything that government pays for is they're getting the money from somewhere. Right. And that that somewhere is usually businesses or wage taxes for people, which means that if the structure of business changes, right? So people might find it weird that like we keep focusing on businesses and how the structure of business keeps changing. And then, you know, there might be a gap for like, how does that affect the government? That is like literally what funds the government. So like if that changes or it becomes harder, I wouldn't say, let's say in the short term, like short term meaning like 10 to 20 years, who knows how, what the time frames of these things are, but like the foreseeable short term, I think that like as this stuff becomes easier, it, the amount is going to decrease that they can collect. It might not go to zero, but as it decreases, you'll see bigger budget deficits and then, you know, more sort of deficit spending. And then that gets really interesting, too, as like interest starts racking up on that kind of thing. And if China or some other foreign governments stop, you know, wanting to fund that. Yeah. Or stop funding the debt. Yeah. So, yeah. And things get interesting. Maybe not in a good way for us, <laughs> but yeah. Way. It kind of, you you run the risk of it eventually hitting a default point, right? Because they're expecting to have a certain amount of income and then it keeps going down and down exactly. and down. Yeah. I mean, if you look at even when they start talking about, and I, I didn't know this until very recently, but when, you know, you'd hear a lot of people like complaining, oh, Trump's going to cut this and cut that. Some things he's actually cutting, but if you actually click on the articles and you actually read what the stat is, he's cutting the rate of increase, uh, which gets worded at, and the rate of expected increase, right? Okay. So I guess there was like an expected increase. And then instead of increasing like 4%, it's only increasing 1%. So, but I guess what they had planned to spend is against what they were expecting off the 4% increase. So when you say it's 1%, then it's like, oh, well, we have less money than we thought. But a business would never call that a cut. Like a business would still call that you get a 1% budget increase. Yeah. It's like fascinating to see that. Huh. Like, I, don't, so, I didn't know that either. Yeah. yeah so when, so, you know, one of the, I think, sections of this particular chapter of the book, he was talking about uh, government being an entity that seems to be run by the employees as opposed to by the taxpayers. And it should be. Yeah. So it would be like the difference between an investor-owned company and a employee-owned company, right? Like... So they gave some examples of like an employee-owned company is never going to cut jobs and constantly want to increase budget, you know, basically that because that goes to that. Well, that's a huge problem with government spending stuff. Like, that's what I'm saying. So based on the reactions that happen when you only get a 1% increase versus a 4% <laughs> increase, right? It's like, that's not a cut. I've heard this happens with the military too, where if there's some military operation going on, every branch of the military will like fight to be involved as well. So even if like theoretically you could just send the Navy to take care of it, then the army will like 
throw a fit and so you have to like include them and then you gotta include the marines sounds like a big company this sounds like yeah big it's kind of like a big are, company right? yeah because i know in in my experience with big companies it's like you include many departments not necessarily because they're needed but because uh it's like give them something to do and you know they'll be very much upset if you don't include them and you might run into some other political roadblocks if you don't include them so spending quickly gets out of hand yeah yeah well they have this other interesting thing with the information technology about the individual as an ensemble. And I hadn't thought about this that much before, but I realized a lot of us are doing this now, where as access to Infotech grows, we can multiply our abilities by, and they describe it as manifesting a potentially limitless number of agents to complete tasks for us. And really, that's sort of how what we do. I think We'll try to find it, put it in the show notes, but there was some analysis of if you took the typical apps on an iPhone and compared the cost today with what all those individual tools would have cost 30 years ago, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, having like a driver on demand even. Well, yeah, stuff like that, (laughs) Ridiculous. But that's actually a good example of this where you have these kind of manifestable abilities, either in your personal or professional life, where you can just like make stuff happen, whether it's through easily hiring someone to do something for you or automating something, right? Like Zapier is a great example of this, where using Zapier, you can basically build little apps that automate parts of your business for you, where you don't need a person to do it anymore, right? Or like writing code, or if you can code some stuff that kind of replaces individuals, and then you can become an ensemble as they're describing it through a common combination of different skills and different like projects that you're working on in businesses and whatever, where that wasn't really a thing before you had a job that you go do. They give a really good example about like a movie production. Yeah, that was really very interesting for Yeah, because it's like these people come together to film a movie and you have sound people, visual people, camera people, actors, directors, like all these people come together for oftentimes huge projects, like hundreds of millions of dollars budget. Maybe not that big, but like, yeah, it could be. Some probably. Yeah. 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 I mean, like gigantic budgets regardless. And these are no one's under the impression that they have that job, quote unquote, for life. They're there to do a specific task and then they'll go their separate ways. They might work together again in some future project, but they're not expecting like that's not necessarily a company that has to exist in perpetuity. Yeah, I feel like we're going to see more of that, like everyone's ability to plug into multiple things at once, right? Where you don't just have that one task, that one role, but you're able to do multiple things and plug in with multiple companies, projects for whatever it is that you're doing. And yeah, there will obviously be some people who are still, you know, just novelists. But for the general worker, there'll be way more of that move towards the contracting style. And I think we're already seeing that. Right. Uh, Taylor Pearson talked about this in End of Jobs, where companies are preferring to hire contractors and freelancers than full time employees when they can, because a lot of times you don't need somebody full time or forever. You need somebody to come into a task and then go on. And I, I saw this argument about the post 2008 crisis where companies laid off all these employees, but they never hired them back, right? Even when the company started doing better. And it was sort of like the companies realized we never needed that many people to begin with. Exactly, (laughs) It was actually good for cleaning house. And if we do need some of these people, we can just hire contractors, right? right? And it's, you're not paying for their health insurance and stuff. It's like way better than having employees. And that's the way I prefer to do all of my work, right? With my site and, you know, even this, it's way easier to have a few specific contractors on specific tasks than one or two employees who are doing, you know, just like 
one thing for you all the time, right? It would almost be, it would be silly for us to hire a full-time podcast editor. Right. Right? Exactly. <laughs> we don't have that much. There's not much edit. for them to do most of the time. Yeah. yeah. But you know, our guy's awesome and I can just like send him these recordings when they're done. Right. And then we've never met in person, right? We just right. talk online. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those cool sovereign individual era businesses. Yeah. And he's got tons of clients right besides me. You know, being like the contrarian as usual, Taleb actually wrote a post recently that's kind of the opposite of this though. Oh yeah? I think it's called How to Legally Own Somebody. Uh, have you seen that? Yeah, 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 that's a good one. Yeah, where it's basically like, you know, for those of you who haven't read the post and we'll put it in the show notes, but he talks about how like in the contracting world, a lot of times, or not a lot of times, it is essentially a bid on their services, yeah. right? So if Nat is hiring this podcast editor and then Joe Rogan comes in and says, hey, I'll pay you like $200,000 per episode to edit yeah. my podcast, we certainly can't afford to pay him that much, right? So we would lose our podcast editor. And Taleb's making the point that like, because that person is on the open market, he's fair game to get bid on, right? And it's great for the individual. That means that they're going to get paid as much as they possibly can. But if someone had hired that person as an employee and that employee was happy, they're not out searching for a job constantly, right? Because they're not, they're not on the market, for lack of a better way of putting it. And their time is owned, right? So if some week we had, let's say, five episodes, that, that's probably not going to happen. But if we ever did five episodes in a week he would have to do all of them for the same amount of money as if he was doing one a week. So it's it's just interesting. I still think long-term, the trend is for sure going to go towards this contracting, but you maybe lose some of the convenience. And I guess maybe that's also the idea behind like when people get pissed about surge pricing for like Uber and stuff. It's like, well, it's open market. Yeah, it's open market. Yeah, it's open market. It's based on the supply and demand. As I read Taleb's article, he was criticizing employment for being that way okay. and criticizing people for letting themselves be employees. Well, I think it's more the individuals that he was criticizing. But it's an interesting point from the business's perspective. Though. Yeah, true. It can make it harder. Like I think he used a pilot who was like a contract pilot as opposed to like a full-time pilot. Yeah, I think he's done the article a couple times now. Okay. Yeah, I remember reading an older version. Oh, yeah. No, he released it as a PDF a long time ago. Yes, right. That's yeah. where I read it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Before he put it on Medium. So I haven't read the Medium version. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's going to be so interesting to see how a lot of this changes, like with the mobility too, right? Where if life becomes undesirable in one location, you just go somewhere new. And it's one of those things we're already seeing it with, you know, the sort of self-employed digital nomads. I wonder how quickly we'll see it with bigger companies too, where remote working will become more popular. Or even changing locations and stuff. I know GE said they were switching from Connecticut as being switching their headquarters from Connecticut to Boston, partially because Connecticut's taxes. And then they were saying it was hard to hire people and have them want to live in Connecticut. They'd rather live in Boston, especially I think younger people. So it, they just left. And they're a big like physical good driven company it's even easier for virtual companies to pick up and leave. It's just an office building. I mean, you might have tied up your lease for 10 years, but <laughs> well, it's a different even, story. Even with that, right? If people are paying for a service like WeWork, then they can go work in any state, right? right? Or even right. in other countries. I don't know if they're international, but a service like that, right? And I could see more and more businesses coming up that facilitate that lifestyle, right? Because like I've kind of thought about for me living in the US, I would love to spend three or six months of the year in Austin, yeah, right. you know, maybe three or six in New York, something like that. There's no good way to do that right now unless you own multiple houses or right. multiple apartments. But you could imagine a you know shared living company that lets you pay a certain amount and then get access to any of the houses. Yeah, you pay a rent that you would. Pay, yeah, you pay yeah. like rent, you know, two thousand a month, and then you can stay in any other places around right. the world. That'd be cool. That's a great concept. I mean, I'm sure someone hopefully is working on that. Sure. It's a great concept. Yeah. I mean, but like shameless plug now for what I'm working on. 
I think even for, you know, I'm specifically working on this in beer, but it probably applies for any physical product industry as well, is sort of by like decoupling the brand from the producer. You It allows you to create like pop-up brands almost is how I'm thinking about it, where you would have maybe like right now, right? If somebody wants to open up a brewery, they're not opening it up for three months. That makes no sense. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like they would have to open it up expecting to be in that game for a long time. But you may just have an idea for like a Natchat beer that you want to just do for like two months. Maybe if it works out really well, people will buy it. What about a beer called Made You Drink? That's a great, that's a great meetup <laughs> idea too. We should do an in-person meetup. We'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but somebody may just want to have like a brand for a month to capitalize on like whether it's a society trend, whether it's like, you know, there's all sorts of ideas people have once you give them the ability to go do something. So I think by doing that, right, you're like, again, you're not tied to a physical place. Like you could start this made you drink beer in New York this week. And then let's say two months from now, you're living in Austin through a platform like Unlimited Brewing Company, you could go start that up in Austin. You're not tied to any physical infrastructure. It's a totally different way of doing things. Yeah. Well, and that's sort of what we see with drop shipping and like a lot of manufacturing businesses too, where I think maybe some people don't realize this, but most companies that you buy products from, they don't have a factory, right? They're paying somebody else to make it for them. Third-party manufacturing. Yeah. I mean, even Estee Lauder does third-party manufacturing for tons of products. I mean, they design the product and then there's another company that owns the factory and actually gets it done. Yeah. Creates the product. A lot of these companies probably never even seen the insides of the factories where their products get made. It just sort of shows up. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's kind of interesting to move ahead like a little bit to where they talk about how we'll be able to see the cyber economy evolving because, you know, again, they're writing this in 1996 and it's cool to read it because they give these three stages, right? The most primitive version will be the internet facilitating what were ordinary industrial era transactions, like an exotic delivery system for catalogs, right? Kind of what we saw. Yeah. Yeah. We've obviously seen all of that. The intermediate stage will use Infotech in ways impossible in the industrial era, like long distance medical diagnosis. You know, we've already seen all of that stuff, right? And then the third era will be a true cyber economy where transactions occur over the net outside of the jurisdiction of nation states. And I feel like we're right on the border of that. Yeah. We're at, I think in, this will be more in a future episode, but crypto yeah. will be very interesting to see how that plays out because that is still a big, I would say, impediment to three. So I would say we're in two. I don't think we're in three yet because everything is obviously still done in whatever the local dollars. currency is, mostly dollars, right? And then, yeah, it is still tied to that physical part of the infrastructure. Like whether it's your bank, like let's say you do have a digital business and you make money in dollars, it's still tied then to your bank account, which has your social security number. You can have the money tracked. Like it's still tied to that physical nation state era. Yeah, so I would not say we're in three yet. No, I would say we're no. solidly in two for sure. But we're definitely we're on the cusp on the potentially cusp. of three because it, the thing is that they say transactions occurring over the net outside the jurisdiction of nation states, and they are outside the jurisdiction yeah. and like yeah. completely invisible. Right. It's only when it comes back into dollars that that's it's visible, right? That's a good point. Because they can't see most of what's going on. So that's why I say we're like 90% of the way into three, where we're like not there entirely. Yeah. There's still some like national sovereignty, but we're, we're getting We're getting close. very close, yeah. yeah. We're very, and, and it's also very interesting to know what, like, I don't know how quickly that transition will happen. It could be once it tips, it tips. And it's like, you know, very rapidly moved into three. Like it's not like a slow climb into three. I mean, I think we're like very potentially on the verge of it, right? Where it will at least be an option. I don't think it will happen globally at once. 
but it will become easier and easier each year to do business online entirely outside the jurisdiction of dollars, yeah. right? Honestly, I think one of the biggest impediment is just how unstable cryptocurrencies are right now, right? Nobody wants to pay anyone in Bitcoin because they assume they should keep holding it. Right. So it's like, no, 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 I'm going to pay you in dollars because <laughs> I like, I need to hold on to this, right? right? Or yeah. as soon as you pay somebody with it, you need to buy more of it to replace the amount you just lost. Right. So I feel like that's one big impediment, but there's definitely other crypto projects focused on creating better exchange of value tools, right? Because like Bitcoin's a good tool for holding value, but it's not good for payments right now just because of the volatility. And yeah, we're going to do crypto episodes. So we'll talk yeah, more about I'm this and that. Like, yeah, because I'm a complete novice. So <laughs> I'm like... I know the word crypto. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there are some coins that are pegged to the value of the US dollar, for example. So something like that could be interesting, where then you know you're maintaining a certain value consistently, and then you could do your payments that way. Do you maintain a consistent value, though, over time uh, good in the US you dollar? Don't. Yeah. I don't know. Inflation. <laughs> I, don't, and I would say no. The numbers Relative to other currencies. And What is that stat? I think they gave it in the book, but or maybe they didn't. I've maybe I've just seen it elsewhere, but I forget what year, but it's been like dollar lost like some huge percentage of its value, like 74, 75% since oh. we got off the gold standard, which is not that long ago. Yeah. It's like 40 years or something. Just a lifetime. I mean, it's, you know, hopefully still be alive in 40 years. But that's just from inflation, right? Yeah, right. If it goes up 3% every year. Then you're but if you were holding those dollars, like if you're holding Bitcoin and inflation happened, but you were just holding it for those 40 years, you're protected yeah. against inflation because there's a limited supply. Well, but inflation could happen to Bitcoin. But there's a fixed right. amount, right? At least from what I understand. Well, yeah, there is a fixed amount. Yeah. But I mean, inflation in the sense of like people's perception of it. Oh, totally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, no, but I mean like, so right now if you hold dollars and mm -hmm. you put them in a bank account, the interest rate is usually, historically has not kept up with what inflation is. Right. So technically that's a tax. Oh, yeah. Right. Because the government gets is holding the money or maybe right. the banks are holding money first. So yeah, in that sense, it gets devalued yeah, in a way that right. a physical good or a cryptocurrency would not. In theory. Yeah. But there's so much volatility. It's hard to know what in the price, I guess, is inflation and what is speculation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then when they're talking about like that third era, they have some of these other changes that we'll see in the economy. And a lot of them have already happened, right? They have like convergent global communication and web transactions. They're fast and basically free. We've got yeah. that. The internet will become unwired for constant mobile access. They wrote this in 96, right? It's, I think we've seen that. Yeah, definitely <laughs> seen that. International business will be done seamlessly. Yep. Media will become customized, including your news. Uh, but some of these things we haven't totally seen yet. So they say your phone is a bank. We're mostly there, but there's still like a physical bank. It would be cool if... You know, not to harp on crypto too much, but you can kind of do this with crypto now where your phone literally is your bank. And that's kind of neat. Multi-language conversation, you know, we're getting closer. Mm. There are actually... So would that be like you're speaking in Mandarin, I'm speaking in Hindi, and someone else speaking in English, but we all understand We all understand each, each other with little cool. earpieces that translate it. That would be really there, cool. There is tech that does that, but it's not like consumer ready. It's not... I think it's too expensive, but it's close. Uh, completely customized production. So again, we're like very close to this yeah. where you can almost take any consumer good and figure out how to do customized stuff in it and make a lot of money, right? Like, uh, what is it, Indochino that does the suits? Yeah. Is that yeah, them? I think so. Where you measure yourself and send in your measurements and they custom make a suit for you and it's only 500 bucks, right? It's a crazy good deal. But I think that's where like one of the issues, not issues, but the hard parts are. And that's maybe why it's taken longer. Maybe that's why we haven't fully seen it. 
is like there's natural resource cost as well for these physical goods. So like, yes, you can do most of these things. Like the suit example is good because it's affordable and it's customized. So then it becomes like a no brainer, right? Like, why would you not do that? But like you can 3D print a shoe right now that's perfectly designed for your foot. Like that has been done by Adidas and Under Armour. They've demonstrated it, but like it's not consumer ready because it just costs way too much to do, right? So like then they'd have to price the shoe in like the thousands of dollars. And that like doesn't work for right. consumers, right? So it's like, I think maybe they'll solve, no, they'll probably solve it. It's just like that maybe is why it's taking a little longer because it's like a cost function as well as a can you do it function. Yeah. Well, it'll be cool if someday in the future we all have little 3D printers in our house. Yeah. And then when we need a new pair of shoes. I mean, 3D printing shoes sounds awesome. Because yeah, it's like sounds feet, great. Even, even though it might be, let's say, the same shoe size, our feet are not shaped identically. <laughs> Getting the right pair of shoes would be huge. Yeah. Especially if you could put your foot in the scanner first yeah. and it could just do a 3D scan of your foot. It's just also a great marketing thing. It's like, okay, that company will sell you a size 12. We'll sell you a size nat. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> I think we'd rather buy the nat one. Yep. Or you'd rather I would, buy the yeah. nat one. I probably wouldn't. But. No, it'd probably be a little small on you. <laughs> and then they have a couple of others, which is like locating your business anywhere. You can work on it from anywhere, but it's still usually established in a certain country so it'd be cool if and there's like the estonia e-visa have you heard about that no. i don't know a ton about it but it's basically like an e-residency okay where so you don't technically live there yeah you, you can't technically live there but you can like establish companies in the country remotely we'd have to do some more research on it we'll, we'll include a link but it seems like a cool first stab at this and then virtual culture I think is the other one where we're definitely getting some of that, but there's not like a virtual world that you live in really with a right. culture. I guess there kind of there is. is like Reddit, yeah. Reddit sort of is a virtual culture and Imgur and Facebook and Twitter. And yeah. So we're, we're getting there. The one thing that they talked about, which I'm still not sold on is micropayments where you're reading a website or whatever, and you're giving them like a, a micropayment, right. For reading it. And then you're like giving out money to sites based on which ones you read. I feel like that's been tried and it's never really yeah. done that well. I feel like it's because the psychological barrier to someone paying a cent even a cent over, like over free is like as high as somebody paying, you know, $5 over free. And so micropayments are just really hard in that sense. But I guess ads are sort of an indirect version of micropayments. Sort of, yeah, because you're getting paid some amount. You're getting paid some small amount. I mean, you're paying the site a small amount every time you visit it because you're giving your it your attention. Yeah. And that's probably the only really way to do micropayments right now anyway. They were right about like 90% of these. Yeah, so like, pretty yeah, good. Like we, pretty good. <laughs> if we criticize them on one, then that's fine. I feel like... The biggest challenge with all of this is what we've already touched on and probably spend some more time on now, which is like the risk of this unemployable underclass. And that's that's their term. It's not ours. It's not a very nice term, but it describes it pretty effectively. As the minimum skill requirement increases for making a meaningful economic contribution, right? As more things get automated and, and also outsourced, right? But the number of people who can contribute meaningfully to the workforce will decrease pretty dramatically. And then people not just at like bottom skill levels, but because like very low skill levels, even a small increase in the capability required to contribute to the economy will put a lot of people out of the workforce. Right. They, they give this example of the turnip, right? So if you think of how a turnip is shaped, kind of like an upside down heart, the bottom is so much wider, right? So the bottom levels of skill have so many more people that if that line moves up just a little bit, you put a huge number of people out of the employable workforce. Yeah. And then you get this question of like, well, you know, one, would this happen, right? Because people have made this argument before that, oh, well, when we have cars, then the horse buggy whips or the horse buggy like drivers will be out of jobs, right? And it never really happens. They can always reappropriate to something else. 
But I think the argument that I find compelling with this is that artificial intelligence is not a job being replaced. It's all jobs. So you can't just go from, okay, well, you were a buggy driver. Now you're a car driver. It's no, 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 no. All driving is gone. Right. And so is like everything related to you know, if you don't have a creative level of skill, then you really won't be able to contribute after a point. So I don't know. Do you find that argument compelling? Do you think that there will be this unemployed underclass? Oh, definitely that there will. I mean, I think we already see a lot of it. Yeah, we are kind of already seeing it. Like not a lot of it. It could get a lot worse, but yeah, it definitely still exists. I don't think it'll be like, okay, I think I started saying this earlier, like people who are in physical labor jobs actually think will be okay for quite some time. Well, not maybe not okay. They'll be the same basically as they are kind of right now. I don't see basically I don't see that part going away. We'll still need massage therapists. And and yeah, like I think like that part is not as in danger. So when I hear the word unemployable underclass, I immediately think physical labor, which is stupid because I know right. it's not necessarily true. They'll be, they'll be safe for like as long as the really techno elite exist, right? Yeah. And like want physical things yeah, as exactly. well. Um, so I actually think those people are like in general better off than uh, like the white collar worker. Yeah. And I think that's where it gets really scary because it's like if you were already, I think they also say this in the book, I'm not coming up with this, but it's like the people who are already kind of in that like quote unquote underclass they're not seeing downward mobility. They might just be seeing the same. But if you are in the middle class, like white collar worker, and you all of a sudden realize you are going to be poor, that makes it a much bigger reason to like essentially rebel against whatever's or be very anti whoever's making that happen to you. So downward mobility seems a lot scarier than like just the fact that you're in this underclass. I think there'll be downward mobility for people working like poor minimum wage jobs too. Because if you're a cashier or something. Oh, right. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Right? Like there's not going to be any cashiers in five years. Right? That's all going to be automated. When I was in the UK, actually, this summer, they, uh, in London, at least, I went to a McDonald's and it was, there was not really a cashier. It was a machine. Yeah, there's no cashiers. It's those machines. Those are cool. They're rolling them out in the US too. Yeah. I mean, if you're the McDonald's, like that makes makes sense. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Or Walmart, right? You want to have as few people as possible, right? Because the machines are going to be more reliable and much less expensive. And so if everything starts getting replaced by machines, and especially if you're doing, you know, and I hate to call it this, but sort of like unskilled labor, right? Or untrained labor, then there's really nowhere for you to go because they're not going to create other jobs like that as the tech gets better and better. So what's the solution? Like, or is there a solution even? Like, I don't, they didn't really talk about this in the book besides saying that there's going to be a backlash. But as I was reading, that was like the first thought that came into my head. And I was just like, what is going to happen? Yeah, what do you, what do you do when you have that many people who can't, join the workforce because i think it's unfathom it's like my brain didn't even go there until just now but it's like you can't i mean i don't know it's like do you just like we can't just let that happen yeah i I I think that's the scary thing is like okay do you let this evolve into like millions uh, and millions of people dying of like starvation basically yeah okay obviously we don't want that Right. right but you know how do you do it then i think that's where a lot of people argue for universal basic income and we were talking about this a little bit before, but it's sort of, you know, if people literally cannot contribute to the economy and you don't want them to just die, right? Because that's, you know, not a good thing to do. Right. <laughs> then, I think we can agree on that. <laughs> you have to provide for them somehow. But then the problem becomes if you are one of the people contributing to the economy and you can go elsewhere where you aren't subsidizing right. the lives of 200 million people, you're probably going to want to do that, right? I mean, so then it's who pays for the universal basic income. Exactly. Who's going right? to pay for it? Yeah. Right. Because I don't know. And this sounds bad, but like, challenges I have sometimes with health insurance is that if you're a really healthy person, it's a terrible bet 
because yeah. you're subsidizing, you know, people who are like really overweight and inactive and all of that. And there's no health insurance like reward for being a healthy person. Usually right. some of them do it, yeah. but I think you'll get this resentment very quickly where, you know, right now, okay, there's some of a welfare state, but like, it's not crazy huge. Yeah. Right. Uh, but if two thirds of the economy can't work and isn't right. needed to work, people aren't going to want to pay for that. Right. But I mean, there's also a psychological thing of like, um, I'm sure there's a phrase in English for it, but there's a, a phrase in Hindi that basically translates to like an empty mind is the devil's home. And yeah. like, and that's always my biggest problem with universal basic income. The concept makes actually much more sense to me than even like food stamps or anything like that. Like it's, yeah. you know, give people money, like they're adults, let them figure out what they want to go do with it. If they want to buy drugs with it, that's their, you know, their call. Yeah. Right. But like, so I'm always in favor of that kind of stuff. But my problem with that though, is like, there's not even an expectation of they are trying to find something productive to do. And I'm actually not scared about that from a like, oh, it's morally like you have to be doing work. It's not even that. It's like for that person themselves to not be doing anything and know that, oh, I'm not doing anything for the rest of my life. Like we, there's not really a precedence that or much precedence for like that on a mass scale and what that does to a society. I don't, my theory is I don't think society survives something like that. If you had two thirds of people who weren't working, even if you, let's say, were able to figure out the who pays for it question, I don't know if a society can survive that. I think people would just self-destruct. Like yeah. society would self-destruct. People say that they'll, oh, they'll do like creative things they always wanted to do. And, you know, I hate to say it, but I don't buy that. I think that some people have that creative bent, have that entrepreneurial bent, and some people don't. And I think the people who really want to do it are doing it. Even in a city as expensive as New York, people find ways to fund, like, I mean, there's artists living yeah. in East Village. There's artists living in, all over New York. You know, like people find a way to make it happen. Make they fun. might have more time to do it, right? right? The people who are already inclined might not have to work like a waiter job or something, you know, yeah. to fund, right? So there's something to that, but I don't know if you'll have a lot of people coming out of the woodwork who are all of a sudden <laughs> creative, right? I guess yeah, exactly. You're yeah. not gonna like, oh my God, everyone was secretly an artist. Right, exactly. Right? That's, so I think, yeah. That's well, it's, it's like a, it's a very happy kind of like liberal idea that everyone's of totally equal ability and they just need the training and the opportunity and they can succeed. I find myself skew liberal. Yeah. I totally disagree with that part of it. No, though. same. It's yeah. like, I think people very clearly are not equal ability, right? Yeah. Just like genetics is a thing, right? Right. Like people genetics, are different. Like yeah. the, all these things are, whether you agree they're right or wrong, like they are reality. Like right. and when I'm never going to be an NBA player. Like, <laughs> I guarantee that. Well, yeah, but when there are no jobs for people who aren't at like the absolute top of the intellectual sphere, yeah, it's going to be a huge problem. And kind of like what you were saying about the, what is it? Empty mind is the devil's playhouse or something. Devil's home. Devil's home. Yeah. yeah, I love that. We have some of that right now where people get unemployed or people get laid off or whatever. They can't find more jobs. They stay at home. They're watching TV, playing video games. They start to get aches from sitting on the couch all day. Then they get put on painkillers. Then they get addicted to opioids, right? And that's a pretty big problem right now, right? There's a lot of the country that's hooked on opioids already. And a lot of it starts from being unemployed and having nothing to do. So these people who were jobless but still getting some welfare aren't, you know, out like learning to paint in most cases. Right, that's a good point, yeah. They end up like staying at home. I mean, have you ever had an experience like that where you were not really working on anything or? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so have I. And you fall into that trap so quick of not, not doing anything. Like, I think my senior spring, I was only taking one class and I was not working on my company anymore. So I just had a ton of time. 
I watched more shows during that amount of time than I've ever watched in my life. I drank more than I've ever drank in my life. Like I didn't start painting or like writing <laughs> or doing anything productive. Yeah. I watched like all of Game of Thrones up to that point. <laughs> I watched all of Community. Jeez. I rewatched Lost. Like, yeah, it was not good. Yeah. It was not good. And then I had a few other friends who were in similar boats. So like we would just be drinking all the time. I was still working out, so I didn't like get in bad shape. But it was just like mentally, it was not a good, like I didn't learn anything. You get really depressed. You get like super depressed. I mean, this is what I realized because I I was chasing the whole passive income lifestyle business stuff for a while. And then as soon as I got it and I didn't have to like work to make money for a while, I was just so depressed and so bored and had nothing to do. And I was like, all right, this is not the answer, right? The freedom from work is not the answer. And so it's in a weird way. We almost need work. Well, you know, this comes up. I've seen this in so many philosophy books and other books, like the ability to contribute meaningfully to something you care about is just a huge part of human happiness. You need something like meaningful to do, right? Yeah. And that's why child rearing can be so meaningful for people right. because that is work as well, purpose. right? And yeah. it's a purpose, but jobs are a big part of it too. Yeah. And, you know, like, especially for men, where if you have, you know, I wouldn't want a hundred million men unemployed and unable to contribute to the economy, just like sitting at home, right? right? Like that's literally how war starts. Right. That literally sounds like the recipe for a revolt. Oh yeah. It's, that's, yeah. that's the foreshadowing. That's the opening of a bad, of like a scary movie, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> a dystopian future movie. And that's like, so. and like that type of situation, I think would appeal to our basest instincts. So it's not like you would have like some great leader come forward and like lead this revolt that led us into this new era. You're much more likely to have like, a Trump-esque character come in and like appeal to some type of, I don't know, ethnic or some type of yeah. like very base difference between people. It's like, let's just burn it to the ground. Yeah, you're much more likely to have that sort of self-destructive instinct play out. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know, man. This is like, it's going to be such an interesting challenge to see as, and, and you know, hopefully, honestly, hopefully, hopefully they're wrong. Hopefully they're wrong. Hopefully, wrong. hopefully yeah. there are new jobs that are created. Or we're wrong about how people will act when they have more time like yeah, this. Like maybe this true. will, maybe people will have the ability to flee the country with their money, but they will choose not to or something. Yeah, that's also possible. I mean, there's a lot of ways it could be wrong, right? But if, if we're right that there will be this unemployable underclass and nobody will want to pay for it, right? That's going to be bad news. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I'm curious to hear what other people have to say, too, because maybe we're missing something. Maybe we think too similarly. Like, I'd be <laughs> yeah, I'd be curious, like, if there's something we're missing, like, definitely let us know. And yeah, I really hope actually there's something I'm missing because. <laughs> well, be- but it's it's sort of like what they were saying, how you can do prediction based on incentives. Right. right? And all the incentives here would say that we're going to keep automating to replace people because it's economically productive to do so. And Although I will ask you one question, because I was thinking about this as reading, especially the last part of the book where they talk a little bit about morality and religion, actually a little bit. I was thinking about like, if you had the ability to leave, right, and save X number of dollars in taxes, but all your friends and family were in the US and you would know you wouldn't be able to come back if you left. Because I'm, I'm not at all in doubt that like the government, if that starts happening in mass, I'm not at all in doubt that like the exile type thing would come back. Like someone leaves and then they're just like, no, you're not coming. You're barred from entry. Yeah. So you're basically saying bye to your friends and family. Right. I don't know. Like, what's the price? Like, I don't, I don't think I would do it. No, so I, I wouldn't like, either. So then it's like, I'm curious, like, how long can that situation, like, I'm just like curious, maybe this doesn't play out on a short time scale. Maybe this plays out over a millennium or something. I, like, I don't really know. Yeah. Um, Although cause I was trying to put myself in that shoes. I don't have anywhere the kind of money that like this would even matter at this point. Right. But like, 
you know, let's say you had like the examples that you're giving in the book, like, you know, somebody has like a hundred million dollars or something and you're That's the difference between paying like, you know, 50 million in taxes or zero in taxes. But if the choice was never seeing your friends and family again. Yeah. I mean, that wouldn't be worth it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But if you, cause you still have $50 million <laughs> and you still exactly. get to see your friends and family. Right. So you'd rather have the money or you're out of the right. family. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's not worth the extra money. Yeah. But I think it wouldn't really be like an individual thing. I feel like it would mm. be, you know, you would have families and groups of friends, right. Choosing to go, choosing to go. Oh, so it'd be more like when people were leaving like Great Britain or exactly. something for religious persecution or something like that. Okay. Well, I mean, it's kind of like the example with Peter Thiel starts a new country and like Elon Musk and all of them are helping like write the constitution. Apply, like you all apply then like you and your right. friends and family would all apply. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah. Right. And that like, if sense. I saw that happening, you know, I would be pinging so like you and a deal so and everyone. Like so then it's like your tribe is going and everyone else is kind of the others in that sense. Like, yeah. yeah okay. It's like, cause I mean, a deal and I actually were talking about this a few weeks ago, but I think on the phone, we were talking about like the idea of tribe. And how it's not really a word that we use all that much, but like, you know, who's like part of your tribe. Yeah. You know, it's like really And it's weird. You can kind of tell right when you meet someone yeah. too, like whether or not you're going to get along with this person. And it right? has nothing to do with like how they look no, or, or their gender or something. It's just like how their brain works or yeah, something. I don't know. Yeah. It's weird. It's weird. I don't know. Hopefully this doesn't become a huge issue because that would be a nasty problem to deal with. They do talk about these transitions, though. Definitely read this yeah. book, by the way. I know oh, we, yeah. Like, we got, I know it's a fairly long episode, but, like, I feel like we didn't even touch on a lot of the stuff in this oh, book. Yeah. Or all, like, most of the really cool examples that... No, no there, I mean, there's so much in it. It's just, like, I have a million sticky notes yeah. poking out of the book. <laughs> so much. I can verify that claim. Yep. <laughs> Maybe not a million, but a lot. A lot. Definitely a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I had to buy more sticky notes, actually. Wow, that's, that's how you know. <laughs> that's how dedicated that is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah, definitely check out this book. Okay, so we've covered a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and, unfortunately, we do have to leave a decent chunk of the book out just because of time and... It's an amazing book. The Everyone, one thing that was kind of odd considering what the book is about is that there's no Kindle version. Yeah, there's no I Kindle version. I found that so weird. Well, okay, so <laughs> I actually think that it obviously hasn't sold like that well. Yeah. There's only something like 50 reviews on Amazon. Oh, okay, yeah. The reason it's making a resurgence right now is all of the Bitcoin stuff. Because oh, because the book, how did you hear about it? I heard about it from okay. Justin Mares, who heard about it from the Bitcoin community. And the only other people who I know who have known about the book said they heard it recommended from somebody in the whole like Bitcoin cryptocurrency community. Because I think it's a big motivation for a lot of people interested in it from the technology side. Because this um, enables or that enables exactly. some of what they're talking about. And, and we'll right. talk about it more in the crypto episode, but like the crypto technology Spoiler enables. Man. I know. Well, hey, I want people to be excited. <laughs> we told them that this episode is coming and we got to tell them about the next one. But that technology will power a lot of this to be possible. Yeah. Right. Of going moving beyond the government and not needing a trusted third party right. for transactions and trust and everything. Uh, I think jumping way ahead, a really good note to end on is their prescription for readers, yeah. right? Where at the end of the book, sort of after all of this is done and what they've said, and they've been talking about, you know, how to survive this transition to the information age, they give this advice, right? So they say, if you can teach yourself how to solve problems, you have a bright career ahead. No matter where you live, you will find problems galore in need of solving. Those who would benefit from solutions of their problems will pay you handsomely to solve them. That has been great advice throughout history. I oh, think that's yeah. perfect advice for the moment we're living in. And someone who followed that in 96 is probably in great shape. Exactly. And that's the only way really to ensure yourself against being left out of the transition to the information age. Because some people will win really heavily from this. And there will probably be that kind of social unrest and dissatisfaction and 
people who end up unemployed. And I think will, this is not even just always a monetary thing. Yeah. Too. It's like it's like let's say there is that social unrest and you need to figure out how to find like water. Right. Being able to solve that is a problem <laughs> that you want to be able to solve. Good thing to be able to solve. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, I think this is like truly what makes humans unique and you know powerful to where you know what we've been able to do as a species so this is yeah this book go read this book phenomenal the sovereign individual mastering the transition to the information age by james dale davidson and lord william Rees-Mogg. this is a great conversation yeah this is awesome more to come till next time see you guys next time All right. We hope that everybody listening enjoyed that episode of Made You Think. Hope it made you think about something. <laughs> I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. No, it had to be said. But as always, episode show notes and more are available at madeyouthinkpodcast.com. Definitely go check it out. Get the links to everything that we mentioned in the show. You can always hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Nat Eliason. And I'm at the Rail Neil S. So let us know what you thought of this episode and share it with a friend who you think might enjoy it. This podcast can only survive and grow with your help. And we would love it if you would let somebody else who you think might enjoy listening to these topics know about the show. Thanks, guys. See you next time.